Welcome to another episode of the Mr. Barton Maths Podcast with me, Craig Barton. A show where I interview people who interest and inspire me from the world of education. This time around I spoke to Amir Arazu. Amir is an experienced maths teacher, someone who has been head of maths in several schools and who is now vice principal for raising achievement at Horizon Community College in Barnsley. Now, I've wanted to get Amir on the show for a while. Listeners have requested more interviews with experienced and successful teachers so they can learn from their habits, processes and past mistakes. And I am a keen follower of Amir's blogs, The Lean Department and The Edge of Chaos. And like me, he is interested in taking research findings and looking for practical ways to apply them to his work, both as a teacher and as a leader. So, in a wide-ranging interview, we covered the following things and more. Amir's favourite number leads to a discussion on the importance of distinguishing pattern recognition and retrieval. Amir then describes a lesson from his past that was a disaster, his words not mine, and what he learned from it. Then we turn our attention to Amir's lesson planning processes and learn exactly what his lessons look like and why he makes those decisions. Then it is time to learn from Amir's experiences of running maths departments. We cover loads of fascinating areas in this section of the interview, such as running a lean department, what do departmental meetings look like, and the really tricky issue of how do you decide which classes to give to which teachers. Next, we move on to one of my favourite books of this last year, Deep Work by Cal Newport, and we discuss how we can apply the key principles to the lives of teachers and students. Then we look at Amir's schemes of work, discussing the essential features and what his homeworks and assessments look like. Finally, Amir shares some recommendations and answers the question, what does he wish he knew when he first started teaching that he knows now? I absolutely loved talking to Amir. He's someone who regularly evaluates what he does and asks whether it has worked or not and what he can change to make it more effective. He is a lifelong learner and I certainly learned loads from talking to him. I particularly enjoyed discussing the challenges and practicalities of running a department and also the section about deep work. I reflect on both of these and a bit more in my takeaway at the end of the interview. So try to stick around for that if possible. Just a quick announcement, and by announcement I most certainly mean plug, to say that my book, How I Wish I'd Taught Maths, is available to buy. I've tried to distill all the lessons I've learned from guests like Amir, and also Dylan William, Chris Bolton, Greg Ashman, the Bjorks, Danny Quinn, and many more, over 100 hours of interviews in fact, into an an accessible practical guide. If you've snapped it up, and I am so grateful that so many of you have, and you enjoy it, then please leave a quick review on Amazon. I'm particularly interested in which areas of the book you found most interesting and useful. Thank you so much if you find the time to do that. Anyway, without further ado, let me introduce Amir Arazu. Oh, and let's address the elephant in the room right away. Amir is, rather unfortunately, from Yorkshire. I think this makes Amir my fourth guest on this podcast who hails from the wrong side of the Pennines. I'm certainly doing my bit for inter-rose harmony, but it's very tough, I can tell you. 
Anyway, I really hope you enjoy this one as much as I did. I am sure you will. And as ever, I will see you on the other side. Okay, Amir, well, we're going to start, as we always do, with the maths speed dating questions. So question number one, what is your favourite number and why? Uh, well, I, I, I did ask a lot of thought about this, and when I started to think about it, I chose zero. And the reason I chose zero, and this might sound a bit strange, but for me, zero is and isn't a number. In some respects, it's, I mean, you know, it's a placeholder in terms of, you know, the structure of our numbers, particularly the decimal system. Um, but it's strange in the sense it's got no value, but we still need to include it in our calculations. Um, and if you ever read the book Zero, A Very Dangerous Idea, it talks about actually Zero has been some sort of philosophical construct. And being a bit of a, a student of philosophy sometimes, that's right on my street. So, yeah, I'd go for Zero. That's a very good choice. And do you have um, do you have like an interesting way of bringing zero into your lessons? Do you, because I always like when my kids love the idea of like dividing by zero. That that just absolutely blows their yeah. mind. I mean, you've got to you've got to be careful because sometimes you can blow students' minds a little bit if you get to like say too far down the philosophical route. But yeah, certainly like the um, when you start to look at the idea of limits and things like that, and so like I start say. I like to establish patterns sometimes. And when you talk about the idea of, say, dividing by a number less than one, I'll start to say, okay, so what's four divided by four? Then what's four divided by two? Then four divided And you start to develop that pattern. And they can see what's happening with the result of the calculation. And they can see this result's getting larger and larger. And then I just start dropping things like, so what happens as we get closer to zero? What happens if it's zero? And just start sometimes to have that kind of conversation because... It, it then starts to connect something that's quite, you know, quite big in terms of, you know, mathematical thinking, this division of zero, but in, in starting from a quite an easy point, really. And, uh, yeah, that, that does tend to um, does tend to get some, get some interesting questions from students. But for me, what that does is it emphasises the point about, you know, division by something doesn't necessarily end up in a, a, a smaller result. You know, this idea of dividing by 0.1, what happens there? And when you get towards looking at zero and those numbers becoming smaller and smaller, they can see the effect. So it just, for me, that's when, it, you know, it's looking at reinforcing that idea that dividing by, looking at dividing by zero does. I like it. Superb. And can I ask you, this is, um, this could take us down a route that, that perhaps we don't yeah. want to go down this early on, but just an interesting thing there, I mean, that, that I've been kind of pondering a bit recently. And this idea of, of introducing things via patterns like that. So, so getting, instead of just coming straight in cold with the concept that if you divide by a number between one and zero, that the answer goes bigger, introducing it, as you say there, first, what happens if you divide by four, then three, then two, then one, and blah, blah, blah. So they build up as a pattern. What interests me though, and I think this is where where I've been making a mistake for quite a few years is how how do you then progress the kids on to spotting those things in isolation when they're not part of a pattern if that makes sense so it's one thing um knowing that four divided by 0.5 is eight when it when it, you can see it in a sequence of, of examples that kind of logically build up to that and kids spot the pattern but then still I'll have kids who then the next day or the next week, they see four divided by 0.5 and all of a sudden it's back to being two again. So do you, do you, do you, can you relate to that? Do you know what I mean? And, and how, do you, how do you get them to answer things in isolation aside from being in patterns? I think that's a really good point. And I think, I think obviously familiarity in, in your, and, and you know, I've seen, you've talked to other individuals about 
changing the surface structure of questions sometimes it's still asking the same sort of, sort of thing um, and then I, again you know looking beyond that surface structure and seeing what's actually going underneath but also at the same time literally I mean I'm going to talk a lot about this I think through our interview but this idea of just constantly going back and testing the things that you know that students are going to chip up on. Students are always going to chip up on divided by, say, 0.2, 0.5. So always going back to those things and, and, and until, you know, until you're really confident that it's got automaticity in terms of their response, you've just got to keep going. I think there's certain things in maths that, yeah, you can establish when you're first introducing something. Like I said, I love looking at identifying patterns in things with students that are already familiar with and then moving them on to the next level, that's great in sort of exposition and modelling. But when you're looking to see if that learning has has been secured, you've just got to keep testing it. You've just got to keep quizzing it in, in as many different contexts as possible. And I know that I think that's a bit of a cop-out answer, but I think actually, you know, in terms of teachers, the things that, you know, are difficult for students, the things that, you know, we know that we'll trip up on, We've just got to keep going back to them as, as, and create as many opportunities to do that as possible. That's tough, don't get me wrong, in terms of the amount of content that we've got to try and cover for students. But at the same time, it's you know you can't be blind to you know thinking, well, I've covered that and I've looked at the pattern, I've established that pattern, um, and therefore the students will be able to do that in the exam because you know you can't live on hope. You've got to be making sure that that is reinforced as much as possible. I think you're right, and I don't think it's a cop-out answer at all. And you, I think you've hit the nail on the head there. It's one thing establishing it as a pattern in the moment and the kids being able to do it in the moment, but you never really know until they, they meet it in isolation, meet it in different contexts, and meet it at diff different points in the future. So, no, that, that's perfect, that, Amir. Um, question two on speed dating, then. What, what was your favourite topic in maths as a student? Um, <laughs> I mean... Again, I'll talk about this later because my, my background's in engineering and a lot of people think engineering's, you know, kind of based on geometry and, and solids and those sorts of things. But really, geometry's never really been a subject I'm great at. It's, it's al algebra for me. It's always been something that, you know, that, that those setting up of problems, particularly around salt, you know, uh, formula solving equations and creating mathematical models, that's the kind of stuff that I did in engineering. So... That's the thing that, that appeals to me, and I always enjoy teaching algebra. And really, you can start from very basic principles with students and really start to build some really you know, clever maths sometimes with students, and they don't realise they're doing it sometimes. They don't realise that algebra is, is, is thinking logically, developing that logical thinking that we want them to have as mathematicians, and that's my big sell on it, really. What do you know? Sorry, go on. Oh, no, I was just going to ask on that, Amir, because I, I love algebra as well myself, and, and just, just since I kind of took you down a tangent on, on speed dating question one, I might as well do the same on, on number, <laughs> number, number two here, because obviously we, we all know as maths teachers that, that kids, no, quite a few kids aren't massive fans of, of algebra, especially sometimes when we get them in year seven or year eight, they've heard from older brothers and sisters that algebra's rubbish and algebra's dead hard and so on. Do you, do you have a, a kind of favourite way of, of introducing kids to the to the wonders of algebra? Do you have a first lesson that you always like to do or or even just a, a general yeah, way or method of, of, of introducing kids for the first time to algebra? I think I think what I tend to look at is more I mean I'm I'm more looking at say kind of definitions and the notation and that does sound I mean I can see people say well that, that sounds boring but you know 
looking at the looking at the point of algebra from a point of view of more about why do we have equations, why do we have formulas, what is the difference, all those sort of things, and more talking around the kind of discipline first of all before we start to get stuck in. Um, you know, I'm not talking about. I mean, I'm not talking about just having tacked-on context for the sake of it. Oh, you might use algebra in, I don't know, um, painting and decorating when you're calculating how much paint you need. You're not going to do that, and I'm not going to undermine that uh, discipline by doing something deft like that. No, I'm going to take it seriously and apply a bit of rigour and scholarship to it and then get them to understand also the historical context as well. Because what people forget is is that algebra is a, is a mathematical discipline. It's, it's relatively modern. You know, geometry really was the first one, and, and number, but algebra as a concept came about because of the way that Al-Kharizmi did, and, and I really like to sell it from that point of view. You know, I do, you can probably tell I'm a bit verbose and a bit flawed in my language sometimes, but I think that helps sometimes with things that students are a bit alienated from and see a bit esoteric like algebra and, and give them some context that they can you know, hopefully connect to. So, yeah, that's the starting point, and then I start to look at definitions, notations, and then we'll get going and find out what they know. But you do that for most subjects anyway, I think. Yeah, absolutely, and I, I like that. So you, you kind of you're attacking algebra from the point that this is an important topic in its own right. It's not important because you're going to be using this in your everyday life, in every yeah. job that you may yeah. do. It's yeah, I like that. I like that. Um, and I'll tell you what, I mean, well, let, let's do question three then. What, what about what job would you like to do if you weren't involved in education? I think I think this is a bit left field, but um, I, I would have liked to have gone into music journalism, which sounds, you know, <laughs> as, a, as a trained engineer, as a math teacher, music journalism very much left field. But I've always been, I've been a big music fan, you know, in, in my youth going to loads of gigs and, you know, I massive CD collections and really into, into it, you know, um, and... <laughs> when I was at university, a friend of mine said, oh, I'm going to start writing for the student union. And I've always, you know, been a bit literary as much as being a mathematician. And uh, I thought, yeah, I'll come along and see what's going on. So there was this kind of big, you know, big northern engineer talking about, you know, music journalism with, like, quite arty and literary types. And it was a bit, I was a bit of a fish out of water, but I really enjoyed it. And I did, did once, um, before I went into, into teaching, I did once fire off a... Uh, a proposal to a, a, a quite well-known uh, music website and uh, got some interesting feedback on along the lines of you're not cut out for this job and that's, <laughs> that's my that's my hopes very quickly and uh, decided to concentrate on uh, doing what I'm actually good at so yeah that was uh, that that was my uh, one uh, one dream denied so yeah Geez, well, I think that the maths world's better for it, isn't it? So, um, <laughs> well, let's let's pick it up from there then. And if you can give us a bit of background on your career, so just after the the shattering disappointment that the the world yeah. of music journalism wasn't for you, what 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 happened next? So, um, my 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 background, as I say, is in engineering. I'm, I'm a degree in mechanical engineering. And before I went into teaching, um, I actually worked on the railways. So I did uh, a year working for. And a, a recently now defunct engineering company, um, and basically looking at doing project management and those sorts of things. Um, and it was it was stressful, and you know it was high profile. I and mean, I was 22 year old working on multi million pound projects, those sorts of things. And I, I, I had a bit of a point where you know it was getting difficult, and I thought, well, I've always wanted to do teaching. It's always been something interesting. I was young enough, you know, to try and make that make that call, and, and went and. Signed up to well, applied to a PGC at Manchester University, 
Um, and very lucky to have two two really good university lectures, Jeff Wake and Anne Howarth, who were absolutely brilliant and really set me off on understanding the teaching and learning side of things, understanding the pedagogical practice, but also having an appreciation for the kind of academic thinking behind things, and that's always driven how I've been. So that, that started me off on the journey. Um, and then I started my first job. Um, I actually taught maths and I taught ICT. Um, and it was interesting because it was pretty much one of those, these are your classes, here's a textbook, and, you know, kind of connect the dots between. And, and, and that, that for me, that was a kind of, I was thrown in the deep end a little bit, but it, 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 from the academic background and from the, the information and learning that I was given from Jeff and Anne and, and the people I, I studied with there, I think I thought teaching can, you know, need, it can be quite mechanistic at times. You know, you can just look at a textbook and go, right, I'll just follow the steps. But actually it started to get me thinking about, actually, how can I, really get students in, engaged and enjoying. I had some very interesting classes at the start. Um, somebody once got, they called them the fudge class because all they were getting were F's, U's, G's, D's and all sorts. <laughs> I felt, you know, well, it's a bit harsh. It really worked on engaging students. So my, my approach has always been, you know, <laughs> just, just bear with the subject. If you're switched off about maths, you've just got to bear with it. And you've got to have that personality to get students on board and I've always taught those sorts of classes and it's always been a challenge but quite often regularly you know students have come out with some excellent outcomes because I've been able just to switch them on a little bit better so that's always been my approach but from the ICT side of things that got me interested in the use of technology and the benefits and the you know the disadvantages of using technology in teaching which you know I might talk about later um, Amir, well, just, just on that, just, just before you go there, just because I'll be annoyed at myself if I don't ask you this, um, just with those kind of classes, because I've spoke to a couple of different people um, about this, what, what is the key to, to kind of turning them on um, and getting them engaged? Is, is it trying to make it relevant? Is it trying to say to them, you need this because it's going to help you with your exam for the future? What, what, what's the secret to it, Amir? I think, I think for me, I'm... I'm I'm quite a pragmatic sort of person, and I'll say to students, right, you know, this is the situation we're in here, you know, particularly if they're in year 11, you know, I, don't, I want them to walk out of this, my school, my class, with qualifications that are going to open the doors and opportunities, and you know as well as I do, you know, rightly or wrongly, the grades that students get have a massive determinant on what they're going to do with their future lives, and I'll be, I'll be open and honest with students, I'll say, look, all right, yeah, like I talked about before with algebra, you might not use algebra, and that's not really, really important to you, but think about what you want to do. You know, they're going to look at your maths. You need to get your maths because that's an indication of learning. Let's just crack on. But also more important in the lesson is just allowing them to, you know, just feel some level of success. You know, if I have to start from, don't start so easy that you patronise them, but don't start so hard that you alienate them. Yes. I think, but I didn't get that. I've never, you know, I still learn about that. And you learn that about all classes, about that balance between too easy and too hard, you know, and there's, there's obviously some research about that in terms of finding that level for students. But I think that's that's the key thing, is, is allowing them to feel like they're actually achieving something, you know, because we've all had that class where they're finding something too hard, and then you in that lesson, you're thinking, well, what, what, what have I done here? And, you, you know, you can walk out of that lesson and feel a bit demoralised because you feel, actually, I've, I've let these students down to a certain extent. So 
That is my kind of approach. It's, it's about being pragmatic. What do they want to achieve? What can I offer them in terms of doing that? And just going for it, really. I've always been the kind of, with particularly that sort of group, like, real, like, hey, kids, you know, maths is great. I'm not going to go down the road. I'm just going to say, let's just crack on and be successful. Got so, it. No, that makes perfect sense. And I think, yeah, the, the more I learn and the more I read and the more I mess stuff up, the more I realize that it's that taste of success that, that's yeah. the ap- absolute key, giving them the belief. Because especially the, these, if you like you say, if you get them in year 11, potentially they've had five or seven or nine years of failure and um, feeling that they can't do the maths. And you've got, you've forget all trying to make it relevant to their life forget all these exciting motivating hooks and all this kind of stuff if they don't believe they're going to be successful or they can be successful i think everything else falls apart so i think you're absolutely right there amir absolutely um sorry and uh, sorry i interrupted your mid-flow about you were talking about technology how um if you just want to yeah. if you carry on from there if that's all right yeah so actually in my first school i mean we didn't have interactive whiteboards the interactive whiteboards are starting to come in then and so what i did have but what i did have was a projector um, and start to you know make use of more interactive sort of things, and then start to explore that in terms of the use of technology, and and and, and learn that really. And I was kind of, you know, kind of coming to my, the head of maths and saying, you know, I've got this, and work this out, and just trying all these ideas. So start developing that a little bit, and then I took that on when I got my second job um, as a subject specialist in maths. So really looking at key stage for the, and then start to think about the kind of. What technology is actually purposeful for a lesson, um, and how how can that support learning? Because I think I do, I do have a thing about technology. I'm a big fan of it, but actually don't use it for the sake of it. And, and just just am I, this might interest you. I remember going to a conference which you and Mark McCourt were at, and you were both speaking. And Mark McCourt was kind of prop, you know, kind of targeted by this question when he was doing this speech about uh, teaching and learning. Somebody said, you know, in an outstanding lesson, we're all expected to use technology, and we all know what Mark's like. He's quite <laughs> No, no. He said, one of the best lessons I've ever seen was done with a whiteboard pen and a whiteboard and just asking questions. And, and that kind of shapes it for me then in terms of, right, that started my journey in terms of when I started going to leadership about picking the right things that make a difference in terms of teaching and learning, not just saying, oh, we'll, we'll stick that on because it's got some benefit but actually the amount of work that needs to take place into sticking that into what we're doing overwhelms what benefit it has. So I'm kind of going off on a tangent there, I'm conscious of that, but I just think that's that's one thing that at that early stage I started to learn. And then from that point, going into being a, a head of department, um, kind of by chance, because my head of department at the time moved on, and I was the only one really in some sort of leadership capacity, and then they said, do you fancy being head, head of department? And yeah, I went for it. And quite literally was thrown in the deep end um, because it's a, it, I was at a tough school, you know, and, and in that situation where you're trying to engage students in maths and, you know, and really get some successful outcomes because ultimately at that point, this idea of accountability comes into the question and that's where the shift starts to go from getting students C's or better to start to look at progress and that was a real challenge then because being still relatively young, being still relatively new to the game and, and all of a sudden having to make some quite tough decisions about where we go in terms of teaching and learning and how we get all students doing well and not just getting them over the line and not, you know, I wasn't playing games, but I know a lot of heads of department were just playing games in terms of as much as possible, get as many students to see all better and then we're all happy. Whereas now, I think in politics, it's been great in terms of that shift in terms of, you know, maths is important to everybody all the way down the line. So that's 
that's where I kind of found myself. And since then, really started to look at learning on the job, which was really difficult. Head of maths, not quite knowing my gate, not quite knowing the you know, the principles behind being ahead of the maths. Um, perhaps taking on some advice on people that wasn't really great. And, you know, from rival heads of department in, in, in the local area who were actually a lot, you know, different context schools, highly successful. And we were, we were like one of the toughest schools in Rotherham trying to get students <laughs> interested in, in mathematics. And they were like, oh, yeah, we get, you know, 80 percent that, you know, well, not 91, A star to C. And I'm thinking I will dream of the day of getting, a, you know, an 80 <laughs> What 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 was some of that advice, Amir? What 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 some what was some of that oh, advice that was perhaps appropriate to them, but not for your circumstances? Well, I, I mean, the the, the the I think the difference is, you know, going back to what we were saying before about relevance and context and those sorts of things. I think that is important in terms of your subject, but at the right time. But you know, the way I, oh, I, I, I fail to remember how many different pieces of advice I got about. Oh, you know using props and using manipulatives and all sorts of things and, and you know there, there are there is a place for you know because in air rods and things like numicon and things absolutely but not at the sake of i mean i was really pushed on this constructivist idea you know talking around what a square is and all this sort of stuff i remember talking to mark mccourt about it and he just said you know never mind worry about the definition of a square just tell them it's a square you know and, and really getting down to the nitty-gritty and just you know, students do see through a lot of this. You know, they do see through a lot of, you know, some strange academic sort of thinking. And actually, they just want to know, you know, how to be successful in the subject rather than, you know, the deeper, you know, I've talked about the philosophical side of things, but a lot of students just want to crack on. You know, if you're really successful, if you're doing well enough, yeah, talk about the wider issues, you know, in the, in the more philosophical side of things. But, you know, don't, it's a bit of inverse snobbery in a sense of patronising students by talking you know, too high level to them sometimes. So that was the, one of the biggest issues I found. That's very interesting, that, Amir. Um, yeah, absolutely. And, and sorry, carry on your journey. I, I, keep, yeah, I keep cutting sorry. you off mid-flow here, but it's just I have so, so many questions in my mind. So, yeah, just carry on your journey. So you're you head of maths at the moment. I think, I think what the, one of the biggest shifts I found was actually I was like, I, I stopped and I thought, actually, I need to stop. <laughs> this sounds really, really stacked but I need to stop listening to people around me and actually go to the source of you know the kind of the academic back the academic reasoning behind certain pedagogical practices what the best schools are doing the best schools that have similar contexts are doing you know when what's the most effective teaching so you know the, the kind of the journey that you know you've gone on as well in terms of now particularly with podcast looking at you know what makes the biggest difference you know, so I started, you know, researching things like you know, what Dylan William talked about in terms of formative assessment. Started looking at, you know, in terms of being a leader, what's the most effective leadership model that take place? You know, really looking at the theory and then trying to apply that in practice. You know, your website was one of the first places where I saw some, you know, some actually practical advice about teaching and learning I could take on board. Mark Greenaway, Suffolk Maths, these sorts of places. Going to those sorts of places, people who are doing it live and 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 not being too, you know, I was doing, I was being given advice by heads of department who like say were being really successful and and because they got students from backgrounds where the importance of, of of education was was reinforced, that wasn't relevant to what I was doing. I was just trying to make it, you know, 
it helps students be successful, engage them from that point of view. Like I talked about before, you get students being successful in something and they're, being, they're, they're with you all the way. But if, if you make it overly challenging and not really connect with them in what you're trying to do, then they'll, they'll switch off. They'll absolutely switch off. So I started to look at, you know, what can I do to make that happen? And, you know, I went down some interesting paths. Like I said, the constructivist idea it didn't really work. But certainly really driving formative assessment and what Dylan William kind of rephrased that recently in terms of responsive teaching and responding to the needs of your students rather than here's what you need to know, now come and learn. It's actually what do you know and how what direction I can take you and how can I and then modeling that with my staff and helping them really take that kind of that process on board really because that was that was that was something I felt was the most effective thing and then you know, learning the leadership practice to get your staff on board. So very much into the deep end of the first few years, found it really tough. But after those first few years, learning what really works and then starting to see some measure of success and bringing people on at the same time. That's fantastic, that. And we're going to dig. We're going to dig very, very deep into running a department, what works, what doesn't work, and so on. But I wonder if before then, Amir, I can just turn your attention back to lessons and, and you as a teacher yourself. And um, because again, I'm, I'm fascinated by how different people approach different lessons and so on. And I'm going to flip things around a little bit, um, for, just for you actually, Amir. I'm going to try, try a different order out here. I, I want normally I ask you to start thinking about a lesson that you've taught that went well and how you planned it out and so on. But I I thought it'd be interesting just, just to start with a lesson that went wrong first this time. So just think back to any point in your career as recent or as, as far back as you like. And just, just talk us through a lesson that you taught that didn't go according to plan. And why didn't it work? And crucially, what, what, what did you learn from the experience? One came up straight away in my mind and it was an interview lesson. Um, so I'd applied for this job. Um, I think it was key stage three maths lead, um, but with like responsibility for ICT. And um, the, it was like I say, it's an interview lesson. And the, the premise was that what I needed to do was make the connection from some sort of some sort of mathematics to another subject area, so English, science, whatever, but include PLTs. Now, <laughs> flipping heck, yeah, <laughs> so, exactly. So. I don't think PLTs was it was an initiative that was 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 implemented by the authorities and and I I will you know I will quiz a teacher now and ask me and tell me about PLTs and they will struggle you know and 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 so I had to think okay PLTs and start to think about you know teamwork and planning and all this sort of stuff so I, you know for an hour lesson must have, I must have spent you know six seven hours in total time looking at what I could come up with so what I came up with was this idea of um, looking at different texts and then looking at the difficulty of those texts in terms of, say, calculating a reading age or that sort of thing. Right, nice, I, nice. Do you see what I mean? And then start to simplify it a little bit in terms of, well, you could look at the average word length, the average sentence length, etc., and start to, you know, so calculating averages, connecting to literacy. You can see where I'm trying to go with this one. And then I had to map out how what the students' roles were in terms of how this kind of lesson went about. So I've got it all mapped out. I've got the teamwork, and I am a big believer in you know in collaborative learning, cooperative learning. You know, it's, it, it does make a difference to students, and so I was really you know up for it. And do you know what? It's an absolute disaster. That <laughs> to finish, it was a disaster. And from <laughs> I mean, the thing is, I mean, I know you've talked about this recently, but like the the maths was completely 
you know, lost in, you know, this idea of, you know, connecting it to the subject of the team. I spent too long talking about the roles that they were going to play and all this sort of stuff. And, you know, the students were like, you know, they didn't even know who I was. And, you know, they, you know, they were really, really antagonistic, you know, because they were just like, this is the first thing, you know, this PLTs things, I, I don't think perhaps they've been pushed in the school. And then I'm there for an interview lesson talking about PLTs and I hadn't got a clue what I was talking about. <laughs> so I was just like, brilliant. It went completely wrong starts. And, and, you know, the kids saw through it, completely saw through it all as just, you know, a complete waste of time. Um, you know, and <laughs> what, what had also happened as well is that a local school that was from a, you know, a more challenging part of Sheffield, had closed down and I think these students had come into this new school and these students weren't getting on with each other as well which was an interesting thing to try and deal with in the lesson and then it was just it was a complete shambles and then I went into the interview I, I should have at that point have just dropped out and, <laughs> and that's it you know I should, you know to be fair in the middle of the lesson just gone nah not doing it and, and just thought you know teach them some maths but I, I persevered with it and you know and I, I mean, the things that I learned really from that is one, you know, concentrate on the the important thing. Don't just tack on things for the sake of it. Even if somebody tells you to do it, just get the students to learn something about your subject. You know, and and I mean, like, I went into <laughs> I went into the I went to the interview and the, did the presentation, and, and because I was completely demoralised at this point, you know, and I just thought another lesson really. I should have just, like I said, just dropped out and just gone. That's it. You know, it didn't work. But in terms of the maths, really, you know, it, it just was a disaster from start to finish. And I just thought, and they knew, the people interviewing me knew it was a disaster. The kids knew it was a disaster. And I was like, oh, what am I doing here? So, yeah, that one, that's, that was the worst, I think. That's great. That's great. I mean, there's there's a few things that come out for, for that for me. I mean, the first is if younger listeners are, are listening to this, just Google uh, pelts or PLTS and just just try and get your head around what was going on there because it still try, it still kind of sneaks through this this idea that and again it's slightly controversial and not many people agree with me on this, but just the idea that you can teach those kind of thinking skills kind of almost independent or even at the same time when you're trying to teach the basics of a subject or the basics of knowledge that the idea that you can get kids thinking deeply about something that they don't really know enough about to begin with or even communicating effectively when they don't know enough about it to begin with and yeah so I mean that that's the first thing that's that springs to mind there that I'm always a, fa a fan these days of let's get the absolute basics right first let's get a get some automaticity let's let's get all that and then we can start to think deeper then we can start to communicate and so on that's the first thing that struck me and the second thing is as you say um just knowing when something's not going well and not being afraid to abandon all plans and, and make a change and obviously like in an interview lesson saying enough's enough uh, but even just in a, a normal you're being observed or even if you're not being observed if you get the feeling something's not going right not uh, even if you've spent two hours planning an amazing activity that's coming next you've not got to be afraid to abandon your plans and and be honest with the kids and say look it's not your fault here something's going wrong here we're just going to stop this we're going to go back to basics and we'll, we'll we'll carry on with what i had intended tomorrow next week or whenever but i think they're key lessons those amir yeah and i think also i think that's really it happened do you know and it happens more than people realize i think you know when you the more experience you have you still do these sorts of things where you're just like oh i've come up i've got this idea and i'll try yeah. and it just goes completely wrong you think it's i mean Richard Deakin talks about this idea of a sunk cost 
you know, you, you know, you've invested that time, so you know, you want to see it through. Well, actually, no, don't <laughs> just bite the bullet. It's not gone well, and, and and take it from there. I think the other thing as well, you know, talking about PLTs and that sort of thing. I have, I do have this this thing about government initiatives, right? I don't mean it. I, you know, I'm probably going to sign my death warrant here. But <laughs> I think there's a we have to. I, you know, I should think about the different, and you, I know you've similar, similar time frame in terms of teaching as me, in terms of the different initiatives that were, well, you know, really detailed and well thought out, and you've got loads of resources and all that sort of stuff. And people, you know, the teachers didn't really have the time to execute them properly and really apply it. You know, like I said about PLTs, about, you know, what is the process of developing those skills? Can you actually do that? And then what happens is, is that, you know, and I'll talk about this later, you'll get stock rooms full of these boxes of stuff that came through about, you know, developing this new strategy and actually take it with a pinch of salt and think, you know, how am I going to apply this and, and don't feel that you've got to be accountable for, like you say, putting these sorts of strategies in place and actually really, you know, you can you can rely on the fact that you know your students are being successful, they're developing the skills you want them to and they're getting good outcomes. That's first and foremost, you know, and that, that was the thing that the one thing that I really learned out of that was don't just like I say, tack on things that you think, you know, need to be important and also aren't really going to be effective because the students haven't got that basic knowledge to go down that direction, you know. So, yeah, I, I, it still it still haunts me to that bit. <laughs> That's a great example out of it. I absolutely love that one. Well, let, let's let's look on the brighter side now. Let's start thinking about lessons that, that have gone better, and especially having learned from all these experiences in, in the past. I wonder if you can pick either a lesson or a topic or a sequence of lessons, however you want to interpret it. But I'm just interested in, in your planning process, Amir, from, from where, what does it start with? And, uh, and and just the different aspects, differentiation, assessment, all that kind of thing. And I, I'll be annoyingly interrupting you at, at numerous parts, but just just take us through in as much detail as you can uh, your planning and delivery process. That's that's no, interrupts away, but because I will start rambling, so that's. <laughs> I, think, I think first of all, really, you know, it's that classic sort of thing of sitting down and thinking, what should students or you know, I mean, I'm not going to talk about topics generally, specifically, but more generally, really, but. You know, what should students already know about the thing that you want to teach them? So the one that example that I always come back to because it's quite clear is if I started, say, looking at arcs and sections of circles, if I wanted to teach that topic, if I wanted to look at, you know, developing the idea, you know, obviously students need to be able to be secure in being able to calculate the circumference of a circle, calculate the area of a circle, but also know, you know, the difference between them you know, we're talking about related concepts and all those sorts of things, know the difference between them and when to apply the correct formulas. So establishing that knowledge first of all. And then I want to think about, well, where do I want to take them with this? And I want to take them to a point where they can calculate the arc length of a, of, a, of a sector or the area of a sector and then, you know, apply it in different contexts, but also work backwards as well. And depending on your class that you've got, you need to think about where you know how far how much time you're going to spend on that kind of pre prerequisite knowledge and then where do you want to take them to and where can you actually take them to because you can't have that same path for say top set year 11 that you can have for middle set year nine so you've got to think carefully about that kind of journey i know ed southall talked about that as well i think that's the one thing that teachers need to be careful about really is not going oh i've got to teach arts and sector of circles so i'll just start planning lessons like that but Think about that journey first of all, and what do you think you're going to get in terms of an outcome? Um, 
and then then I start. I mean, you know, I, I don't write a lot down. You know, I, I do use I do you know I do use an interactive whiteboard. I do a lot of planning through you know say you know a smart board or pretty ethereum board depending where what, what I've got in front of me, and I start to you know sketch out you know, the the, the modeling terms of what I want to get to. And really, in terms of the structure of the lesson, it's it's really, really kind of it's very similar structure. I'll do some sort of retrieval practice at the start of a lesson. So I'll go back. To, it might not necessarily be connected, you know. So you know, connect. You know, sometimes I want to to be interleaving and going back to something that's you know, I, like I said before, like dividing by decimals that are between zero and one. They might, I know they might be struggling with that. I want to go back to that. But then you know, start classically. Bit, talking about what, what the lesson's going to be about, so that's position. Can I, can I just but, then ask there, ask there, sorry, sorry, I mean, this is the first no. time I introduction. What, what does that, retrie- well, two questions really. What, what does the retrieval practice look like? And can I also ask what happens if it becomes clear from that retrieval practice that the kids aren't as secure in the knowledge as you hope they would be? Right, so, that, so talking, talking about mo- the, the most recent sort of setup that I had when, you know, my, my last kind of purely line management and mass role. We started to, and it was, this, it was an idea that Danny Quinn had, had, had talked about, this idea of having a review lesson every week. Um, and if I established that in a, some of the retrieval practice there was a real gap in something, then I could bring that bring that topic up and explore the misconceptions in the review lesson rather than that impacting on you know the kind of main direction lesson I wanted to go, and you have to reassure students about that because sometimes teachers will say, "Oh yeah, we'll, we'll look at that another time." We'll say in the review lesson at the end of this week, we'll look at that topic, and then yes. that, you just see what I mean, and that reassures them. And so, sorry, go ahead. Oh, sorry, yeah, and I was just going to say, yeah, I think I think that's absolutely right, and if. Um... If it was prerequisite knowledge that they needed to be able to access the new thing that you were going to teach them. So say you use the example of dividing by decimals. If that was going to be fundamental to whatever new topic you're about to teach and it was clear that they were a bit dodgy at it, would that dictate that your lesson's going to go in a, in a different direction or, or how would you cope with that? Yeah, I think, I think, you know, going back to what we said before about don't just you know, plow on with a lesson that's, you know, clearly not being effective. It's the same sort of thing. In that time that you've got, you know, allocated, I mean, I, I tend to think on a week-by-week basis, within that week of what I want to look at and explore, I might slow the process down, you know, and, 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 and take, on, take on the fact that actually I'm not going to get them to where I want them to be, which we have to be pragmatic about. We're limited in the amount of time that we've got as teachers, you know, so we, we push them as far as we possibly can, but it's important that we don't push them on, ignorant of the fact, like you've just said, that, there's some sort of foundational knowledge that they're not securing because that will show up. You know as well as I do. You can students will have great procedural knowledge. They'll like get and oh, when well, you know, I've got to calculate the you know um, art length of a circle. You know, so I've got to calculate the circumference of the circle. But then they'll use the area formula. Yes. Because you can't differentiate between the two. So I think that's it's really important. Don't just me- mechanistically go through a series of steps. You've got to. Think about, you know, going back to this idea of a pace of what you're doing, don't be afraid of slowing it down. And I think that is a bold thing to do because sometimes when you've got, if you plan resources, if you've got a textbook in front of you, all that sort of stuff, that ability to kind of think, you know, on the fly about responding to something can be quite, can be quite challenging. And I think that's the one thing that I've always been able to do. I mean, over time you develop this experience, you can start to think about what kind of questions can I ask to close that gap so we can move forward. You know, students always laugh, students always laugh, they'll say to me, 
how did you come up with that question? Where have you got that question from? And it's like, because it's my job to have those questions to answer. <laughs> you know, and then, then we can move forward. So I think absolutely slow it down. But also, you know, if they've very quickly got that prerequisite knowledge secure and you know that, don't hang around. You know, get them on, you know, push them on. And if you get if you finish what you want to cover in that week, then great. Then develop the idea further and do take it to the next level. Don't just, you know, go, right, on Monday I'm doing this, on Tuesday I'm doing this, on Wednesday I'm doing this, because <laughs> you know as well as I do, students work at different paces and come up come up you know, the knowledge comes up at different paces and, they, and the, the confidence develops at different paces as well. And that's that's right through the ability range. I've had sometimes, I've introduced a topic with a lower set and because they've switched on to it pretty quickly, I've pushed them on and we've got further than where I wanted to be. But likewise, with a top set, where there's something that's not been so strong, then I've had to really slow things down and, yeah, patronise them a little bit. But that's been necessary for me to know that they're going to be secure. Absolutely. And again, just just two more questions on this retrieval practice. Um, the first one, fairly easy one, possibly. The second one, uh, probably a real awkward one. Um, so the f- first one is, again, just just what does this retrieval practice look like, Amir, in, the, in these lessons? I mean, it's, it's literally, I mean, the, I mean, I use, a, use the mass box, uh, five questions, or I'll use the code mass five a day because I want a mix of different questions. I don't want it to be, you know, saying, oh, it's all Pythagoras' theorem. You know, a little bit of interleaving within that within that uh, that time, and it's literally they come in, they crack on, and then we'll very quick, you know, very quickly just go through the answers. And but what I'll be careful of is that retrieval practice will be on things that they should already know, and not and actually a level that should be quite accessible for them. I don't want to set them up at the start of the lesson where they're struggling already. They might have to think a little bit harder because it might just be a bit a little bit beyond, and you know. The idea of forgetting and retrieval and that effort to do that, but that's that's important. That happens. So I think the picture of the, the doing our activities should be quite accessible, but it's literally just them just getting down and thinking about those problems, and then we'll go through some of the, we'll go through some of the answers pretty quickly. And if I identify there's an issue somewhere, then I'll say to them, right, we've got an issue with that question there. We'll we'll look we'll explore that idea, like I say, in the, in, in the review time that we've got at the end of the week. So. Yeah. I'll go with that one. Got it. No, that, that that's fantastic. And that that leads me nicely to, to the the slightly awkward question, possibly. And I say awkward because I don't have a clue what the answer is myself, and I, I really struggle with this. Um, if we take your example before that, say you're about to teach um art, art length and sector areas and all that kind of stuff, and you've decided in the retrieval practice to assess their knowledge of the area of a circle formula and the circumference of a circle formula because they need to be able to distinguish between the two and so on and um, what are you doing in that scenario um obviously if if all the kids are getting it right and they can distinguish fine you're cracking on if they're all getting it wrong you're, you're slowing the pace down and, and you're laughing there as well what are you going to do in that awkward scenario that often happens to me when whenever it's very clear that a decent decent proportion of the kids can distinguish between the two they're ready to move on and then other kids definitely need some extra practice what, what do we do there that is that is you know i don't think there's it's quite easy to say oh i'll get i'll get that group the, you know the, the the confident group often working and, and 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 cracking on with something that they they, they might be confident with and then supporting the others but actually that group who's cracking on you know you need to keep an eye on them in terms of actually you know are they applying some sort of misconception? You need to be really careful about the activity you're getting them to get on with is quite scaffolded and structured. So actually, when I took, 
when I'm introducing the topic, I, I, it's not. It, some people may may see this as spoon feeding, but I will literally break the, any processes down. I'm very big on um, seeing the skills that students. So, like for example, using the area formula for a circle or calculating the art line, breaking that down in terms of a series of steps because that skill, that process, is a tool that those students are eventually going to use in some sort of you know problem solving or contextual situation that they need to do. So actually being able to you know follow that process right is really important. So I'll break that down. So if I'm getting students to move on with something while I'm supporting another group, I will make sure that they have got those steps absolutely secure. And it might be them holding back a little bit, but actually they need to be you know absolutely secure before I say, right, you guys crack on. And like you say, then then I'll look at how I can develop some ideas and reinforce what I wanted those students, to, the other group, to know, um, after, you know, at the same time, kind of, you know, simultaneously. So, and with that group, again, quite often, I won't necessarily move them. I won't necessarily move them into a group on their own unless the, you know, the environment's right for that. What I'll tend to, what I'll do is I'll be at the at the board, like I say, coming up with some questions. I might have written some questions to anticipate it, and you know, a bit of whiteboard practice and constantly, you know, just drilling the the certain skills. And then saying, right now we can get it going. So again, not I don't think that's a brilliant answer, but that's kind of the way I would take it. But you've got to be really careful about the, the class that you're allowing to just, you know, get going and get on. You've got to be really careful about what they're actually doing because if it's too loose and it's not so structured for them, then those misconceptions could be generated. You go over to that that group thinking, oh yeah, they're on it, but actually when you look at what they're doing, <laughs> it's, it's wrong. So. That's that's kind of my concern with that sort of approach. I, th- I think you're absolutely right, and it's obviously th- there's no easy answer whatsoever. But I think th- the danger is, and th- this tends to happen. I'm going to generalise here, but when teachers are being observed, and particularly when a non-math specialist is observing them, they like they like, and I've had this feedback myself that if a child demonstrates that they have an understanding of something and there's no way of knowing how deep it is they may just have got particularly lucky at that particular time there is almost this need to push them on right you crack on with this so here's some work for you to get on with right you're not as secure so i'm going to deal with a bit of different work for you you don't have a clue what's going on so let's do something different and the class becomes a bloody nightmare because kids are all working on different things and then the, the key thing is well two two really as you said um quite rightly the kids who you've assumed are absolutely fine what on earth are they getting on with and secondly like if we take your area of a sector and um length of an arc lesson you probably want to introduce that concept all together with the class all together in a really structured well thought out way you don't want kids kind of getting ahead and potentially developing this, these misconceptions and so on and, and i think the lesson that i've kind of learned over these last couple of years amir is that differentiation too soon is potentially an absolute nightmare and for me i would rather potentially hold people back if that's the right phrase for five minutes or even 10 minutes for them to reap the rewards later the differentiation can come later on in the topic and in the thought processes as kids kids think deeper and go further but if you differentiate or attempt to differentiate too soon it can all fall apart i, I don't know if you'd agree with that no i, I totally agree with that. i mean let me put that put that in context so this week's part of my new, my new school we've just done a, done a college review and I did observe a number of lessons and um, two lessons I observed at the start was the, the, we've got joint subject leaders from us and there were two very different contexts of class very different and in the first one uh, 
the, the, the team she had established, you know, actually they are cracking and she got some too. She was really secure in that they got it and then she differentiated very quickly and then she could work with different groups and that was fine. You know, it worked perfectly. But then in the other subject leaders lesson, she was really careful about setting that tone because she knew that class and she knew that some of the students might, you know, have that kind of confidence that they know what they're doing, but actually there's not the security there. So she spent a real, you know, a highly detailed amount of time, you know, looking at, you know, what misconception would be and really setting them up and setting them off right because she knew that, like you just said there, she wanted to have some level of understanding of what those students were getting on with and being, you know, being confident on and not just plowing on and getting it completely wrong. So there is, you know, time and place for differentiation. It's got to be done effectively. But do not, do not assume, never assume it. Because if you just say, I've got to differentiate so and do it for the sake of it, that creates so many issues down the line. And, if student, and also, if students expect it because... You know, they're like, oh, yeah, I've got it, right, come on, I want to be getting on with something. And they've got that, <laughs> like I say, that overconfidence sometimes. You don't want them to feel, you know, switched off and, 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 and dismayed when actually they haven't got it. And because that's your responsibility as a teacher. So, yeah, I saw that live on, like, on, on Wednesday in terms of knowing what, at what point you are going to start kind of branching students off in different directions because actually it's, it's, it's really important that you, you as a teacher know your class and don't do it just for the sake of it. It's, it's difficult, isn't it, though, I mean, like, do you, do you feel the pressure, perhaps when you're observing other lessons or if people are observing your lesson, to to build in this differentiation because it's seen as a bad thing if, if kids are kind of moving along at the, at the same pace at, at, at any part of a lesson? And... How do we how do we get around this? Because I know for a, I know for for a fact that I'll have teachers listen to this because they've they've said this before when I, when I've discussed other things and they say, look, this is all well and good. I, I completely agree with this. I know that it's bad to differentiate too early and so on, but I have to because if somebody's watching me, whether it's Ofsted or part of my performance management or something, if they see me. And, and I think this is where it gets muddled up with, with Dylan Williams' point about responsive teaching. If they see me not responding to the different kids' answers in terms of in terms of giving them different work to do, then I'm not doing my job well as a teacher. So, I mean, do you feel that pressure, Amir? And 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 kind of what can teachers what can teachers do about it? This sense that we know it's right to not necessarily rush kids through things and set kids off on different work, but we've got this external pressure to do so. I think I think the difficulty with I, I think the difficulty with maths is, and I'm, I'm, I'm using a phrase that I've shared with other people last, the last few weeks in terms of. Maths is, is one of the kind of the black sheep of the family in terms of the subjects that we, we, we teach in schools. And you, you, your subject knowledge about that about maths is very important when you're observing. You know, you, you've got to know the subject inside. You've got to know something about the subject because other subjects lend themselves quite well to different directions and different starting points. Absolutely. Um, and you, you can't make that assumption that these things apply to maths. Now, and... You know, that doesn't, that's not to say that some things that work in other subjects won't work in maths. I'm not saying that. What I'm saying is, is that because of the, there are some kind of psychological things, I think, with maths in terms of, because it can be quite, um, it is, it is, a, it is one of these things where, you know, unless you've got the knowledge and unless you're securing the skills and unless as a teacher you can see that that security is happening, um, 
you are placing those students at risk. And I've, you know, I've seen, you know, I've seen ways, like I said, it's used effectively. It's absolutely great. But what this teacher's done is established a clear starting point. I mean, I was going to talk about this later, but um, and one of the, one of the best conference sessions I've ever been to. Craig Jevons and, and Bruno already had been over to Shanghai, and and they came back um, and they talked about some of the practice. And one of the things that Craig Jevons talked about this idea of within five questions, um, by incrementally changing either the concepts or the procedure or the difficulty, but around the same skill, how difficult, how far can you take or take students in your subject? And I think. That's kind of a kind of a middle ground sort of approach because what that does is say you might start with I don't know we talked about dividing by decimals earlier you might start with a very clear dividing by decimals question but by incrementally changing things and that increment depends on the you know the ability range of your class incrementally changing things you can take them to a very challenging level very quickly and I think for me that is the way that I would prefer to go kind of easy access but within a very short space of time those students are doing something more challenging, but still with the security of having that easy starting point. You see where I'm coming from? So it's, more, so it's more about it's more about differentiating by kind of pace, if you see what I mean, rather than differentiating by starting point, if you see what I mean. But that said, okay, if a student is clearly getting the basics right, don't set them exercise where, you know, going back to dividing by decimal, they're just dividing by decimal, they're just chaining out the sum because... Again, you're switching them up. They've got it. Move them on. Yeah, I think you're you're absolutely right there. And I I think the realisation I've come to is that, and again, I don't don't know if you agree with this, Amir, but I don't tend to differentiate, as you say, at that starting point. When I'm presenting a, a worked example or an explanation or anything, I want every single child watching, listening, fully focusing on that. Even if I've got some kids who fully understand what I'm about to say, I don't want to take that risk. I want I want their five minutes of full attention, but I can only justify doing that if then I can set appropriate challenges in the questions that follow. I think you can, I think if you then give every child the exact same work or the or crucially the exact same amount of time on that work, then I think it, it, it all falls apart because you've got to have some differentiation. But like you say, I would rather have the exact same starting point, but then differentiate in, t- in terms of the time I give kids on on different tasks before I move them on and so on. And I think that that's the kind of compromise, or I don't know if compromise is the right word, but th- that's where I'm at at the moment. That's how I can justify no differentiation in my starting point, if that makes sense. Yes, I, 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 tend, to, I tend to agree with that. And I think, you know... <laughs> That, what talks about me, Craig Jevons and Bruno, what they've seen in Shanghai, you know, like you can talk about, you know, whether it's, you know, Shanghai is representative of China and all that sort of stuff, but that's clearly working. You know, that's clearly working and pushing those students onto a high level of thinking with, you know, really good mathematics outcomes. You know, why are we, why are we saying, you know, no, actually, what you should be doing is you should be starting Freddie over there on this and, and <laughs> Little Anna over there on this and, you know, <laughs> what grounding have they got to do that those students you know how what foundations have they been given to actually start from there you know and by doing that like you say at the start of the lesson a bit of exposition some modeling some formative assessments have got to happen but from you know really establishing that kind of mood and you know that starting point for those students and then making that call with them and actually the students themselves will be able to make that call 
because they'll be like, well, I'm not sure about this, and you've given them the options, you can take them forward, and you know, and it's right for them. I'm not completely saying that you know students will be able to choose what they want to do, but at the same time, they're not daft. You know, they, they know if they're not getting something, they'll go for something that is a little bit more accessible. But going back to what I said before, you're just going to make sure that the access is easy, but within that, you are pushing them on. And so that's you know, there's, there's a lot of thought that needs to go into that, and I think. That's something that I think I, I as, a, as a teacher, you know, want to work, would like to work on, but you know, different responsibilities these days. But yeah, that's the thing. That's the thing that interests me now. Absolutely superb. And and just just back to, back to your lesson, Amir. So if we, I'm just interested in again your kind of way you'd way you'd introduce new concepts. So if we assume you've done your retrieval practice at the start, and now we're at the point where we're going to do do some do some teaching for for want of a better phrase, well, what does that what does that look like? So in kind of kind of the, the structure of the lesson, you've done retrieval practice. I'm now taught. I might do a little bit of a premise in terms of okay, this is what we're going to be looking at today. This is how it connects to what we've done before. This is where the direction is going, so we can see where along the journey they are in terms of the maths. So I think that's really important. And then literally, like I said before, is looking at what are the skills that are required in order for them to be able to deal with this sort of problem and really scaffold that to begin with, but then take those that scaffolding away. And then when I start, I'll maybe go, I might go through a problem as a worked example, um, and then I might shift that a little bit to another example where I'm starting to ask questions of students and then that, that you start that develop, you're developing that back and forth response. I'm asking questions, they're asking questions of me, modelling that. But then it's difficult to do this sometimes, but, you know, think about cognitive load and all those sorts of things. You know, having that, then that worked example that you've been through, that one that you've modelled and shared with them and discussed it and then saying, right, here's one for you off you go and see how you get on and you know and then and then using you know mini whiteboards getting them to you know think about the problem giving them the time to think around it and then again if they're moving in the right direction push that on but bring it back and talk about the key steps if they're not so sure so there's a there's quite i would say for me there's quite a lot of time where students aren't actually sat down you know working through problems independently I am judging where they're at before I like to talk about, about where they, you know, the direction I want to take them. So very much looking at formative assessment and incrementally changing different things and how might how might this problem come about in terms of the different ways, like the different surface structures, like we talk, you've talked about before, with different individuals, and then then start to look at what are they going to do. And what I've, what I've done at that point is that with the formative assessment, I'll I'll ask the students to keep a record of what, how many questions, you know, if it's two or three questions, how many of those are successful on, and then that will tell me, you know, and then I'll look at kept an eye on If the students tell me they've got three out of three, and I know for a fact they haven't, I'll address that. But then I, that will tell me actually, you know, what starting points they can work on in terms of the activity they want to do. And what what's that formative assessment uh, like? I mean, is it, it what style of questions is it, and how are you kind of collecting responses in for kids? How how are they indicating to you whether they've got it right or wrong? I think I think first and foremost, I'm 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 relying on I'm relying on mini whiteboards, and I'm relying on that data from you know using data in in the sense of you know just collecting information um, from the mini whiteboards, telling me okay, is it what's hindering them here? Is it the, Sometimes, like for example, going back to Daisy Christodoulou, where she talks about how you know the question that you choose is really important. Yes. You know, <laughs> you know we, we 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 laughed and joked about this when we talked about looking at this as a department a couple of years ago. 
there's a question, there's an exam question, it was talking about a patio. You know, and I think it was to do with tiling a patio. And one of the students had said, I'm not sure about this. I said, why? He says, because I think that's ratio misspelled. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it, it sounds daft, but it's those sorts of things. So you, I, I, what I'm really careful of is getting, I, can they do the skill? And really stripping out any context, can they get the skill? And then introducing context or introducing connections to other things or framing it in a sort of different way on that surface structure. But if you can't, you know, like I say, it, this is going to sound this is going to sound really daft as an analogy, but like, if you're a builder, right, you are not going to start just building. You're going to learn how to use the tools that you need to build, and you're going to learn how they work, when they don't work, and all those sorts of things. You're not just going to start, right, I've got my toolbox, off I go. You've got to know how to use those tools, and it's the same thing in maths for me. Matt, I, I, Ed, I, Ed, Ed Southall once said that we, we it actually, it, it sounded disparaging, but I know what he said. In GCSE maths, we don't teach students how to be mathematicians. What we're doing is we're giving them a series of tools in order to use in the, you know, beyond beyond the GCSE studies. We're teaching them how to calculate percentages. We're teaching them how to calculate fractions. We're teaching them how to calculate probabilities and analyze statistics. They are tools, and I think from that point of view, if they can't use them, if they don't know how to use them, they're never actually going to be able to build on that. So. That's where I really spend the time in terms of that formative assessment. Can we use that skill? Can we actually demonstrate it in a very simple context before actually moving on into anything? And would it be fair to say then that when you look at planning lessons to get, uh, pl- putting lessons together, planning uh, individuals and sequences of lessons, is most of your time spent finding the right questions to ask? Is, is that the most important part of the planning process? I think you'll like this response, Craig, but I once listened to a podcast of yours from a long time ago and you were interviewing Will, Will Emony. It was one of the very first ones and he said, as a teacher, your primary objective is to plan the questions that are going to establish what understanding students have. And I think that is crucially important. And I think as a teacher, anyway, you come, you, as experience develops, you know that you start to know those questions. But, you know, and you can't be arrogant, you've got to think about these, but you start to develop the kind of things, you start to spot patterns of how students are learning things and you know the kind of questions you're going to be asking. I, that's where I spend most of my time now is planning the, you know, the, the kind of teaching learning, the pedagogy. When it comes to resources, I think that is a good, one of the greatest time sinks for teachers is finding resources. I am, you know, I'm a big fan of Joe Morgan in terms of what she did, what she does with her website, because she says these are the best things out there for these topics. Don't waste your time scrolling through Google and the test resource bank and all this sort of stuff, you know, and 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 focus on these are the things that you know will will be effective. Because actually, you can't use a, a resource is not a proxy for good teaching. So I think more about the teaching side of things and the pedagogy than actually. The, the, the practice that they're going to do in terms of resource. I have a very limited pool of resources that I go to in terms of what I choose from. You know, I will look at things like, we do have textbooks, you know, and we do have, you know, I will use activities like from Don Stewart. I'll use, you know, look at what John Corbett put together on his website or some math books, things like that. But if I get, basically my end point is if I can't find it on Joe Morgan's website, or I can't find it on Ed Southall's website after I've gone through the textbooks and that sort of thing, I'll probably put it together myself because wasting time finding resources is, is, is not what teaching should be about. 
Absolutely. And there's, there's a couple of things I just want to pick up on there, Amir. The, the first is, can you just give us a sense of, um, and I know it's very hard to generalise, but, but just the different time time periods that you allocate to each of the components of your lesson. So how long would retrieval practice take? How long would this exposition and formative assessment stage take? And then what about this kind of independent practice part? Uh, it's not, I mean, the retrieval practice side of things is usually the first five or ten minutes. I don't want to yeah. spend too long on that. The, you know, you, you, that, that, those, those kind of milestones in the lesson, I think, need to be fluid. You know, yes. I think you can, and, and, and also at the same time, and this, I think this is really important, okay, your lesson time is, is, is arbitrary. You know, it should not be the defining kind of period over, you know, what dictates what goes on in your lesson. You can't just go, right, well, I'm doing dividing decimals this lesson. Because if the students get that, right, and they're really secure in it, why waste the next 30 minutes of your lesson, you know, move on to the next stage of what you wanted to do? And that's why that's why I tend to plan, what I tend to think about things across a week, because I can start to bring things forward. And that gives me time to then plan, you know, what can come in at the end if the, if the students are accelerating things. So that's there has to be a bit of fluidity in there. And that's something... At Dixon's Trinity, when we start to look, and again, it's off that's late, but we start to look at collaborative planning, is that idea of, you know, there's, there's, a, there's, a, there's a whole journey that's going on in the this week, rather than this is lesson one, this is lesson two, this is lesson three, and, the, and then allocate the time within that. Yes, no, that, that makes perfect sense. And the, the other thing I just wanted to ask you that you, you mentioned there is, I'm finding this myself, Amir, and it, it gives me heart that you are too, that there's almost a bit of a paradox that certainly when I first started teaching, so this is my, I mean, I'm losing track now. I think maybe, let's say it's my 13th year of, of teaching. Certainly if we, if you go back, if you go back 10 years, that there was possibly, Tez was around in terms of resources and Mark McCourt's eMaths was around, but there certainly wasn't the wealth of resources that you have today. And yet more and more these days when I'm doing lessons, I find myself writing my own questions and exercises that I want kids to do purely because and I think it's because I'm a little bit obsessed with variation theory and yes, many yeah. different examples and all this. I don't find enough of those sequences of questions. And I'm more of the opinion ever than before. And I talk about this in the book and I've mentioned this on the podcast, that it's the sequence of questions that helps kids form these connections and these this deep understanding and very, very importantly, and I'm going to, I'm, I'm very lucky that in the future, John Mason and Anne Watson are coming on the podcast about this, this idea of expectation that you want kids to form an expectation of what the answer to the next question is going to be based on what the previous question was. And, it, and if, if they don't have that opportunity to form that expectation because the questions have been chosen at random or, or not well thought through, then it's a golden learning opportunity missed. So are you finding this as well, Amir, that despite the fact that we've got these wonderful banks of resources that actually you are still perhaps or even more so writing your own these days um yes and no i think where i see a sequence of questions i mean i generally start with a textbook i generally start with a textbook because i think somebody somewhere has, has been employed to really think about these questions i hope they've really thought about these questions <laughs> yeah you know, they've been employed to think about those questions and put those together. And, you know, that, that's right. And, and so I'll start there. But then, you know, I look at, like, uh, Dan Taylor's increasingly difficult questions. Is that yes. more along that line? You know, and I'm, I'm a really big fan of what he's put together there. That's a real, that, that for me, and, you know, 
talking about we talked about with Craig and Bruno going over to Shanghai. That is more the direction that I think things start to need to go. And you look, you, there are certain, you know, we'll call, call it the, the Twitter sphere, like you call it, there's certain people in that Twitter sphere who are re- doing some amazing things because they're taking academic practice and, you know, that, that, that theory that, you know, I know you're looking into and then, and then using that to develop the resources. And that's what we need, that's what other teachers need to be doing. Most teachers don't have the time to sit down and do that. Or, you know, they, they, you know, they don't have the, some teachers don't have the dedication that has that might sound. But so they need to go to a starting point. I mean, it just always used to frustrate me when, you know, I'd, I'd been a, we'd be in a subject meeting and somebody comes, oh, I found this great resource. And I'm thinking, how long did that take you to find that? You know, in, the difference is now is that you've got these people putting these things together and that's the direction that things need to go. It's interesting what you say about John Mason and Watson because, again, that it's academics again, I think, who are driving that. And going back to the, the, you know, the variations theory and all these sorts of things, it's all it's all academic practice. And I think in the past, I think there was a period of time, you know, you've been teaching the same amount of time as I have. When we first started out, you know, in, in the mid, you know, mid early two thousands, where it was literally, you know, textbook go through those questions, that sort of thing, where now I think, and that, that was because I think there was a disconnect from what was going on in academic practice. That's coming back in. I mean, you say about students, the expectation of knowing the next answer, that comes from, if you, you know, the, the, the cognitive load theory, and that, you know, students learn well when they're pushed to it in a direction where they're still familiar, you know, about the environment of what they're learning, but it's, it's something slightly different and they can make that connection better. That is so important. But again, that is, a, that is having the time to think about it and be academic about it. Teachers don't have that time, but I think we need to be, as, a, as teachers, asking for more of that. One of my... Yeah. Sorry, I'm, I'm, oh, no, sorry, go on. You, you keep going to me. I think one of my biggest bugbears, and again, I'm probably signing my own death for it, and I'm not going to talk about specific publishers, but, I mean, how many changes of specification have there been in GCSE in the time that you've been teaching and I've been teaching? A number. Yeah. You know, Correct. you look at certain certain textbooks, and those textbooks, you know, are saying, oh, it's ready for the new specification and all this sort of thing. And actually, it's the same questions in a slightly different page order. It may be something tacked on or pushed or changed because of the, the you know, like I said, the change in specification. And like people are forking out huge amounts of money for like massive sets of textbooks, and it's it's pretty much the same. As teachers, I think we need to be asking more of those people who are supposed to be serving us. In terms of, you know, we do need resources. We need quality things to go to. We don't want to be wasting our time. You know, I get what you're saying about writing young questions. That's fine, but we can't. That's a lot of time dedicated to that. We need to be asking more of those people, supposed to be supplying us, and saying, you know, we want quality. You know, we want things that are grounded in that practice that you know you talk about. You're absolutely right. And I wonder, obviously, we're not going to mention names of textbooks we hate here, but I wonder, is there anything, because I get this, these questions a lot, and I'm always asked to ask guesses, particularly who are head of departments. Do you have a favourite textbook? And it doesn't have to be one that you use across your department, but even just that you dip into yourself when looking to introduce topics or come up with sequences of questions. Do you have any kind of good go-to ones, I mean? Yeah, I mean, I've talked about particular websites. I think when I started teaching, um, I mean, I don't know if Daryl's still teaching. Now, Daryl Eaton said to me, he said to me, I found this amazing website called CIMT. Oh, <laughs> yes. 
And I went, he said, yeah, you know, it's, it's absolutely free. You, you can get in touch with them and give you the password as long as you're like, a, you know, in, in, in a teaching. And the CIMT website is amazing. It's absolutely amazing. You know, you know, there's so much talk about quality textbooks and, you know, quality lesson plans and, you know, the, the resources that, you know, provide structure for questions that you can ask in terms of your formative assessment and the tests that are there and all that sort of stuff. The, the MEP, CIMT website, has got all of that. Everything. It's, you look at you look at the lesson plans that are there, and it's like it's broken down in terms of the questions you can ask and the kind of responses you might get from students. It's got the historical background of the, of the, of the you know the topic that you're going to look at and teach. It's got revision tests. It's differentiated. You know, it's got all this sort. Of, you know, it's, it's everything that we talk about. It's all there. Yeah, you're right, and I tell you what, I mean, it's, it's one of the it's, it's one of the crimes in maths teaching that not enough people either know about it or use it. Because you, you, in terms of a, a bank of questions, it's phenomenal. In terms of the progress through questions, it's phenomenal. It has the answers, which uh, I mean, I'm, I'm maths advisor for Tes, and that's one of my all-time bugbears. Whenever someone does an amazing worksheet, but the, but the answers aren't there. Because I'm thinking that's great, but it's going to take me 20, 30 minutes to to go through it, and they're all there in CIMT. But the other thing as well is. For those who, who are fans of rich tasks, they're built in as well. Like they've got activities and some of them are flipping out of this world and they cover year seven right up to year 11. And as an extra little twist, the because um, they're, they're quite old now and they were written at a time when the GCSE contained things like estimating the gradient of curve, estimating the area underneath a curve. Basically, all the topics that have come back in for this new spec, they've come back round. So CMT is probably the most relevant up-to-date textbook you could ever get your hands on. It's got Venn diagrams in year seven. It's got everything. So yeah, I'm so pleased you brought this up, Amir. Big, big shout out to CIMT. That's a great shout, that. And also, what's most important there it was it was done by it was created by a university, so it's got it's based on you know this again people are, have been well not in place you know the university but the people have you know sat down and really thought from this journey that we want students to and it goes to you know they've got primary school materials there as well they've got A level material there as well you know the whole journey from you know three to eighteen they have mapped out. And, and put everything into actually how can we help students along at whatever starting point they've got. The G they've got um, they've got a, a book on uh, proof, you know, they've got a book on GCSE statistics, and it's it's as detailed. And I just think you know we lose we're always one of my things is you know it's the, the human condition is to look at what is new and new is therefore better. And I think that's, yes. that's a, that is a mistake sometimes. You're right. Some of the things are a little dated. You know, I've sometimes, you know, put things for students on and the like, you know, it talks about like Teddy Sheringham or like, talking <laughs> yeah. like, 30p and they're like, where are they going? You know, <laughs> you know it's, it's those sorts of things. And, you know, and it's just saying like, another one, another one of mine, and, you know, the National STEM Centre, Upload so many long resources, and they've got the smile cards up there. I am, I am waiting for the time when they put the SMP booklets up. Yeah, I'm with you there. I saw it. It comes around every now and again. Someone on Twitter mentioned that the other day, and I was retweeting it left, <laughs> right, and centre. I, I want some kind of like one of those government petitions where you need a hundred thousand signatures or something to to get them on there because that that would be a game changer, wouldn't it? Yeah, and I think one thing I will say is I pretty much I I learned, I learned that through the SMP course. You know, and my teachers blessed them. We're kind of like, right, you've done that booklet, now do the next one. And it, yes. <laughs> you know, they did, you know, they did a lot of, right, here's what you need to know, there's a booklet, crack on. And, you know, and I, that's how I learned that's to my, to my detriment, I think. But also at the same time, the tasks in there 
you know, I remember they were brilliant. You know, and we still see the odd ones kind of flash up. Oh, I found this 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 booklet. You know, I know someone's got the full set in there. So yes, definitely. Oh, that that is a great shout. That well, I'm gonna I'll do you my takeaway bit at the end of this interview. I'm gonna reignite the campaign to to get those uh, get those live because yeah, that that is something we need. Um, last question to me just on your lesson itself. I'm interested in um how well actually two two things really if it's all right. Firstly, um, just in a practical level, how how do you go about uh knowing whether kids have got right answers to the kind of independent practice that they've done? How how do you go about displaying or sharing the answers to kids? Um, yeah, that's a good one actually. Because I what I will tend to do if I if I'm on my game, and sometimes you know we're not on this game, but when I'm really you know really driving things, is that I'm really big on live feedback. So and I don't mean I don't mean marking for the sake of marking, literally. Talk to the student, yeah, that's great. You know, you're on the right track, and just keeping keeping them going at that sort of level, and, and telling them if they're right or wrong. Then, and then, you know, towards towards the end of the exercise, get get the answers up, and then get them to say, you know, it's, it's part of that dialogue. Then, in terms of, are there anything that's there that you are questioning right now? Is there anything that you you've not got? Is there anything that you think you've chipped up on? And just establishing, getting a sense of where those students are actually at. Um, I, I, I do. So it depends on the, the detail of exercise as well. Because if they've done, lot, they've had to do lots of practice. I'll not laboriously go through every single answer and go through the modelling for that. But if there's some questions where I think they might have chipped up on there, I'll, I'll focus on. I will actually focus on particular questions and particular answers. I might not necessarily answer. You know, I might not even give the answers for every question. I might sometimes say, right, if you were on this question, what did you find? What do you think the answer was? And, and that, for me, is an indicator of any misconceptions that might come up. Have they seen under the surface structure and un- understood what the question is asking of them? You know, sometimes I will go, it depends on the class, sometimes I will go into detail and, you know, and, and, and model an answer, particularly where I think it's important, but I won't laboriously go through every answer. Literally, I'll, just, I'll, I'll have established 90% of my understanding of where they've got it by just going around the class and checking out if they've understood it. And students are students, they'll tell you as well, to be fair. Got it. Fantastic. And, and last question then, Amir. How, how does this lesson end, or how typically do, do your lessons end? Is this, do, you have a, do you always do a plenary, or is it just where, when it's near the end of the lesson, wherever it's at, that's just the end? Um, well, how, do th- how do things wrap up? I have, I, I, over my teaching, things have like, really evolved in terms of what I did in the lesson. There was a time, there was a long time until relatively recently. I used to put some sort of exam question up on the board and and and, and talk through that. But you know, going back to what you interviewed Dave Christodoul and having read her book, and you know that that pre doesn't really tell you much because if they've not got the exam question, why haven't they got the exam question? So I've stayed away from that now. I'll I'll give you a sell in terms of the diagnostic questions. I do put, <laughs> I do put you know some multiple choice questions because they do establish again you know if they, like you know this if they've written well and they've got those distractors in there and those sorts of things they will tell you very quickly um, if students have picked up on it. One thing I will say I don't know you know what which direction you want to say this but listening to you know Robert and Elizabeth Bio you know you're interviewed there and this idea of the dichotomy of learning performance. And I think in a lesson, you will you do not know at the end of the lesson if students have truly learned what you've gone through that lesson. You've got no security in there until the next time you come to that and they can replicate that. 
you don't, you know, if they can't replicate it, they haven't learned it, they've performed. And I think that's really important for teachers to understand. That's one thing I learned when I started to look at um, this idea of retention of knowledge. Some, you know, really into, you know, you could probably tell with the cognitive load and the working memory and all these sort of things, you know, the retention of knowledge, you, you, you will not establish that in the lesson, in the moment. You'll establish that some period of time down the line. So yes, I will do an exit ticket to check if we're on the right right direction in terms of the journey they're taking, but I will not take that as they they've got it. Do you see what I mean? I do. I think you're absolutely right. Um, I, I fully agree with you, hundred percent. And the the always the bit I always add to this um, is because I, I know a lot of fairly prominent people will say when they hear that argument, they'll say, "Well, what's the point in formative assessment? What's the <laughs> point in an exit tickets? Blah blah. What's the point in asking any question of a child?" So what I will say is, and obviously I'm biased towards uh, diagnostic questions, but whilst it's true that if a child gets a diagnostic question right, um, you don't have um, gr- very strong evidence that they've fully learned it you need to test retention later but if a child gets a diagnostic question wrong you certainly do have evidence that something has gone wrong so you're informed how best to act so I always kind of add that little bit in that I I learn more from wrong answers than I do from right answers in the moment if that makes sense absolutely and just and it's, there's an interesting connection there because back in the early days of teaching I used to do like I used to cut like run like the year eight football team and all these sorts of things and we did some FA FA coaching and it's the same sort of thing. When you're coaching a, a sport, if you cut, if you break the skill down, which is really important, if you break the skill down and, and coach the elements of that and build that up, you know you are they're practicing that in the environment, the support that you've got them. But the only time that you will know if they are actually taking that on board and, and, and retain that and, and be able to to retrieve that knowledge is basically when they're being tested on it. So, and when in, in a sports, obviously in a game, you know, in 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 in, in lessons, in learning, it's, it's when we're actually assessing them. So, you know, I think I think that's it's really important that people understand that in terms of do not take, you know, if I, you know, if I used to train like you know taking a throwing and stuff like that. Yes, that student has, has shown me, and I've had to work a little bit in terms of technique on a throwing, but actually. It tells me nothing about what, how they're going to perform in a, in, a, in, a, in a game. What it tells me is that in that moment, they get it. Do you see what I'm coming? I do, and I thought it's a really useful analogy, that, Amir. Yeah, no, I, absolutely. Right, Amir, so I want to turn our attention now to uh, to running a maths department because this is something that I know listeners are particularly interested in, whether they're existing heads of department themselves, whether they're aspiring to be heads of department, or just whether they work in, work in a maths department themselves and they're interested just in, in different policies and the way different things are run. So my first question to you is, again, just to start on the negative, because I always think it's, it's more interesting to, to kind of look at mistakes than successes. What, what mistakes have you made leading departments in the past and, and what have you learned from them? I think um, just before we start in this direction, what I, I, I really want to be careful about is um, I, mean, I am... I do line manage maths now in terms of my uh, senior leadership role. So, um, yeah, I have to be, I want to be careful in terms of like, this is more of my reflection side of things and that sort of stuff. But talking about mistakes, I think one of the biggest things that I've, and I've made this, I made this mistake twice. And, and what I did, what I failed to do is in my first role as head of department, I was, you know, a relatively successful. And you know, and I got a second job as a head of the department, similar sort of school, and I and 
because I was relatively, relatively successful at a similar sort of school, I thought I knew what I needed to do with that school. And I actually pretty much dictated matters in terms of where I wanted the department to go rather than actually collaborating with the people who got the experience of being there. You know, they were the experts in terms of they knew the students, they knew what kind of things that they uh, were capable of doing at that time and kind of just ploughed on in my, you know, in, in, in my uh, quest for, you know, excellence in mathematics teaching, if you see what I mean. And what, what actually happened there was after about the first term, I pretty much, you know, I'm nearly swollen, but I pretty much antagonised, <laughs> you know, every single member of the maths department to the point where they weren't really even talking to me. The difficulty was that um, I was the youngest person in the department by a long stretch. So you've got to think that I'm leading the department, but I'm also kind of, you know, their eyes are rookie. So um, that was an interesting sort of dynamic. And what, I, you know, what happens there is that, you know, you're antagonizing experts, but we have one or two kind of novice teachers there. And they became overly dependent on me because they didn't really have the expertise to kind of move things in their own direction. So pretty much lost the term in terms of, you know, wanting things to happen and that sort of stuff. And I think I remember the first the first department meeting we had in January. I stood up in front of the department and basically said, "I have been a prat." And just, <laughs> you know, and you know, I think it was in more you know interesting language than that. You know, because these guys were all ex-miners and had been teaching longer than I'd been alive and all this sort of thing. So you know, I could be straight with them and, and basically said, "I'm holding my hands up," and you know. This is how I should have seen it. This is how I'd take forward. And like I said about being more collaborative, you know, and, and taking advantage of the expertise that I've got. Because actually, like I said, I've been teaching for a very long time. And although outcomes weren't great, what it was is that I could provide the direction, but they could support me in making that happen rather than I'm doing everything, you know, and then expecting them to follow. And that was, that's probably been my biggest mistake as a, as a, as a leader in mastery. And so, yeah, got to be careful. Careful to, you know, not try to, drive things on your own that's great yeah that's great advice because i think i mean I've, I've not been head of department myself but i've certainly been in schools where you've got a new head of department coming in and i think one thing that i always think is that and it's hard sometimes to to consider this when you're the head of department coming into a school because you're thinking right what am i going to change how am i going to improve things and so on but it's an incredible time of uncertainty for those people who are within the department because they they don't they don't know who you are they don't know what direction you're going to take it in and it is very similar to teaching itself like including your students in the in the di- showing them that it's a collaborative process this that a successful lesson it doesn't matter how good you are as a teacher if you haven't got the pupils on board then forget about it and it's I, I would imagine it's the same with with running a department that you have to get your team on board and the best way to do that is not necessarily to involve them in every decision that's going to be made but collaborate with them and explain why you're making the decision that you you're you've made through your conversations with them if, if that makes sense yeah and, and don't get me wrong i mean i've i've, I've had classes where we, we <laughs> you know we do not get on and, and, and you know, you've had, and, and over time, slowly, very slowly build those relationships up and, you know, learn that lesson with adults. What we've got to, what people tend to forget with teachers and it always annoys me and, you know, and I've been guilty of doing this, like I say, is that we forget that these, these people are university graduates. Yes. You know, they're, not, they're not daft, you know, <laughs> they haven't, you know, they haven't just turned up a thought off and doing a bit of teaching and, you know, where do I start? They, they've been, you know, they've either, you know, done some sort of, you know, 
academic theory, you know, and really explored that. It might not be, you know, connected to the subject, but you know, they, 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 they're not, you know, they're intelligent people, and and to ignore that, I mean, that you know, we, we see that in so many different contexts in education at the moment. It really frustrates me, um, but. I think, you know, the value of people's experience, like, say, and understanding and building those relationships and, and having them on, on side is, you know, it's got to happen or you just won't get anywhere in the department. And can I ask just um, learning from this, What just on a practical level, how, how do you go about doing that? Is it one-to-one meetings? Is it kind of a... Uh, a big departmental meeting where anybody can say whatever they want. Well, what's what's the best way to kind of establish what's going on within a department and, and get other people on board? I think, I, I mean, you know, I, I, I kind of, I, I, I sometimes misfired on this sort of approach, but because I think sometimes I went a bit too blue sky thinking. But <laughs> what I, department, what I, what I tended to do and reinforce regularly was where I think we could take things within the school in terms of what we could do with the students that, you know, the intake that we've got. I think it's really important. I think, you know, say, you know, not what we're dealing with in the moment. And I, you know, you, we can go down vision and all that sort of stuff and mission and ethos. And, and they, I absolutely agree. They are important. And, you know, I do implement them and I believe in that. You can go too far down that route sometimes and go really blue sky and, all those sorts of things, but I think it's important to say, look, this is what I want to achieve, and, you know, and this is what I, how I think we can go. Are you on board with that? And if you're not on board with that, we can explore. And if you are, fantastic, let's go. And know as well what's driving those people in your team. You know, I, I've, had, I've, I've had in my departments, I've had such a different range of people, such a different range of experiences and backgrounds and interests and where they want to go. And Find out what makes them tick and also find out how they can make a contribution. I mean, you know, one of my former secondary departments, you know, was brilliant on behaviour and classroom management. Absolutely brilliant. And I'll be honest, it's, it's one of the things that I've really had to work at and I'm, I still work at today, you know, in terms of, you know, setting the standards and building those relationships, those sorts of things. And I learned so much from him. And so much from him that you know it became a reciprocal process because then because I took the time to value what he could contribute, he was then he felt more part of what we were trying to do and then was more amenable to what I was trying to get. It is a bit of you know I'll scratch you about you scratch mine that sort of thing, but that's how these dynamics come about. That's great, yeah, that is great advice, that Amir. And just just moving on from that because th- this is something that that fascinated me when I was doing the preparation for this interview. We had um, Peps McRae on not too long ago, and he he spoke about lean lesson planning. And I think the the concept of lean is is a really really interesting one because it, it's it's really kind of pertinent to. Uh, at this current time in our profession because we, we've got a bit of a workload crisis and that's why it was it was great having peps on speaking about lean lesson planning that is still incredibly effective and then obviously when i'm reading up doing prep for this interview i, I came across your concept of a lean department so i wonder uh, because again having having worked with quite a few heads of department now i know they are snowed under with work and um, i know it kind of negatively affects their teaching and i also know that responsibilities within the department um, can start to fill up people's uh, time outside of school and it, it can all kind of fall apart from there so just talk to me amir about about this concept of a lean department and, and how we can go about developing it i mean i'll be honest with you it's still i mean i it was an initial sort of 
kind of thought process and philosophy. It's more of a philosophy sort of thing with the kind of approach that I kind of take at the moment. And I went to research, I didn't talk about it. I don't think I came across really clearly in terms of the direction I wanted to take things. And that, but I interestingly did uh, bump into, prep, uh, into Peps and he said, you know, I'm really interested in this lean idea, you know, tell me about it. And I think, I think in its essence is that the, the issue that I have is that I think sometimes, you know, I, I've read some, some of the book recently about this thing about the whirlwind and we get lost in the whirlwind of what's going in day in, day out in, in, with teachers in terms of what it happens is they get, there's so many distractions from actually just concentrating on teaching practice and being able, like we talked about before, about concentrating on what's the questions and, the, you know, the, the teachers that want to develop in the lesson. Rather than, you know, I've got these books to mark, I've got these assessments to process, I've got this resource to find, I need to do this and I need to make a decision about these things. You know, I want to put them in displays, which I know is relevant to you right now and all this sort of stuff. And it's, it, there's, there's so much around just teaching lessons. And one of my, one of the biggest things that makes, you know, it sounds really obvious in this path is the quality of teaching and learning in a lesson is the, the biggest arbiter of how successful a student is going to be. So you, we need to dedicate as much time for teachers to be able to develop that. So for me, it was my, my, re, my real concept you're thinking about it was, what can we put in place so that teachers can concentrate purely on teaching and learning, or as much as possible teaching and learning. What decisions can we make? How can we design structures for them? What systems can we put in place? All those sorts of things. So actually, they can be, you know, the, the professional thing that they're aiming for is to concentrate on teaching and learning and not administration. Well, this sounds great. You, you've, you've sold me on the dream of this, Amir. So, so talk, <laughs> talk, me, talk me through the practicalities of it then. What, what, what kind of things have you brought in that have, that have made a difference, that have edged us towards this, this concept of this lean department? I think, I, I think it's still in its nascent stages, really, because I, 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 you know, I, I, I did, you know, I, if I'm honest with you, I had, this, that, I had this vision of writing a book about it and putting it all together, that sort of stuff. And, and you know what writing a book's like. You know, it's, it's, a, it's a hard job and you really need to think a lot about how you're going to put that together. So actually what I'm doing now is taking a step back and thinking about what it actually means. And from, from, from my background in engineering, one thing I learned is that 90% of problems that come from how something works comes from the initial design of that thing. So for example, 90% of the problems of your car come from how that car was designed in the first place. 90% of the problems with your you know, TV come from how it was designed in the first place. And I think that's that's more kind of direction I'm looking at in terms of the design of things. And, and I'm talking not just about resources, but the structures that we follow. So say, for example, um, you know, pre-planning as much in advance. You know, and when I mean pre-planning, I'm talking about things like you know, the structures of lessons, what to retrieve and when in terms of the learning journey that you're getting students to work through you know, the assessments that you choose, use and those sort of things. So many people write assessments for their students. I think it's such a waste of time. You know, actually, we want to find out where they're up to. And if you are testing what you taught them up to that point, actually, all you test, you, it's, it's like you, you're not establishing what they don't know. All you're doing is reviewing what you've covered with them. Do you see where I'm coming from? Yes. And then we talked earlier about resources. Again, I said this earlier. 
it, finding resources is the greatest time sink that teachers have. I, I had a conversation, when I started to think about this, I had a conversation with the department that was then needed. And I said, you know, tell me how long it takes you to plan a lesson. And they'll say, oh yeah, I'll, I'll spend, I'll spend, you know, X amount of time on questions and all this sort of stuff. And then I'll be like, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll spend a lot of time getting the right resource. And I'm thinking, why? You know, the, the quality will come from your teaching and learning. You know, most, you know, most well-written resources are already out there and, and front and centre. You don't need to be searching too much for them. So again, pre-planning resources, pre-planning sleeping lessons. And really, it sounds, it's, I'm not de-professionalising the teachers, but I'm taking decisions away from them that they don't need to make because all they really need to be concentrating on is teaching and learning. And as they get more responsibility, as they get more chances to be leaders, then they can support me in making those decisions. But if their, their frontline job is being a teacher, letting them teach. See, this is it's, this is an interesting one for me, this year, because this is this is something that both Greg Ashman and, and Danny Quinn spoke about when I when I interviewed them, and it was something that I I'd not considered before. But the idea of more centrally planned lessons, in the sense that here is a selection of questions that um, every teacher should be asking. Here's a really good resource that every teacher should be using. So. Is, is this the line that, that we're going down here that we could, our kind of biggest time saver here is instead of having 10 people each spending 30 minutes um, each planning their own individual lesson and there's five hours worth of kind of planning time taken up. Instead, let's have one teacher planning a really, really good lesson for this thing and everybody using it and, and be more efficient that way. Is, is that a key component of it? Yes, it is. And I think, I mean, one thing we need to be careful of here is I'm not saying... The, the, the issue with that that many many leaders will have is they'll say, well, how do I know that that, that planning that resource isn't just being, you know, worked through, like I said before, mechanic, mechanic, I can't say the word, mechanistically, um, and, you know, how do we, you know, we need to know that the teacher is actually adapting the pre-planned resource to suit the needs of their student. And that is the difference there. Because for me, you talk to, you know, you've already, your line of thinking is exactly on the top right here. That five hours of teaching and planning time condensed down into, you know, half an hour by one teacher. What that means is that the time that's not being lost on planning the lessons, it should be invested then, once they've got that resource, in terms of directing that in order to just think about, okay, what are the questions I'm going to ask? What am I going to adapt to what I've got? And that actually takes a lot less time than putting the whole thing together in the first place. Does that make sense? It, it does, and I wonder if it, I, I'm not sure what my opinion on on this this next bit is myself, and it's it's something I'm kind of wrestling with. But I, I wonder what your take is. I look back to when I started teaching what, 13 years ago. I, I'm sh like I am sure if somebody had videotaped some of those lessons, it would be like a horror show now because I I I was terrible. Like I I couldn't I couldn't plan. I couldn't preempt misconceptions. I thought good planning was yeah, like you say, spending a couple of hours on Tez or wherever, finding a good result and then just shoehorning it into a lesson whether it was right or not but I wonder just like we I mean you spoke at the top of the show about a mistake that that you made when you, you were teaching and how you learned from it I wonder if I'm only better at planning now because I've planned so many bad lessons and delivered so many bad lessons is there a danger that if we go down this kind of centrally planned route that teachers will never get that experience of planning bad lessons and seeing bad lessons and so therefore n never get better if because I, if, if I'm an, an, an NQT and I get given 
a really good lesson. Firstly, how do I know it's a good lesson? How do I distinguish it from a bad lesson? And secondly, how do I have that skill to, to adapt it to, to, to suit the needs of my class if I haven't got that bank of experience that possibly, one could argue, only comes from, from planning lots of lessons myself? I think, I think that's a very valid point. And my counter to that would be how you execute that in terms of the pre-planning. So one strategy that put together in terms of um, planning the lessons was to do it collaboratively. So I would say to my department, right, you two are going to look at uh, year, year seven this week. You two are going to look at year eight. You two could look at year nine. And actually, that would pretty much be the same. It would be the same pair of people in the same year group. And they would, t- they would teach that year group anyway. But also look at the dynamic in terms of that pairing. Because, like, for example, we were looking in terms of, you know, in terms of having experienced people, but also NQTs, and pairing up an experienced person in the NQT so that there's that kind of, the kind of indirect mentoring of what the what good planning looks like, if you see what I mean, in terms of, you know, when they go through the collaborative planning process, you know, the NQTs might suggest something, and, they, and then the experienced member of staff might say, well, I'm not sure that'll work. Maybe we could tweak it in terms of that way. And then more importantly, and this is a point that we didn't, I didn't get to in, in, in the last school, but more importantly, once those lessons have been put together, there's got to be a feedback loop in there. So, right, that works. That didn't, we can refine that next time. So what, what, what I established, and I hope you're still continuing, is that there was time... You know, I talked about pre-planning things. We pre-plan when we were going to plan. <laughs> yes, <laughs> I do, I do. So, so then that cycle, we would check that, you know, the idea is that we'd go, right, well, what worked well there? Let's make a note of that. What worked well there? And then feed that back in and then refine. Because that's really important. Going back to what I said about earlier about certain government initiatives with lots of boxes and resources that we all had to switch to within a matter of seconds or, you know, the person who's the, you know, like if an inspector came in or something like that, we'd, we'd all be shot because we're not using APP. Sorry, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> no, but, you, but I, and that, it, that is quite flippant. I don't mean that in terms of you know disregarding you know some very important things there. But what what tended to happen there is it was like a step change, and it was a step change that if not executed well, created a lot of issues and created a lot of waste and created a lot of lost time. You know that is a there's. there's in lean, you know, in, in lean manufacturing and things like that, and I'm not trying to apply a factory model, I'm trying to talk about a philosophy of thinking in terms of lean manufacturing looks at, you know, don't lose time, don't lose money, don't create waste, but, you know, focus on producing quality. And for me, the producing quality is what's going on in the lesson, you know, and the, and the questions that are being planned. You know, we, you know, like I said, going back to the idea of lost time on resources, that's lost time. Time you will never get back. You'll never get that back. Resources, you know, photocopying loads of things that don't work, you know, it's, it's, it's really, really important. We, now, especially in the context of a lot of schools now, where, you know, resources are being, you know, pulled back and certain costs are being streamlined and all this sort of thing, schools really need to be careful about where they're investing the time and money. And I think that's that was kind of the trigger for me in terms of this is, you know, we can start going in that, this direction. Let, let me ask you something slightly controversial, I think. And I only say controversial because, again, very few people agree with me on this. Um, I definitely see a value in teachers working together to plan questions. I think it's one of the best things teachers can do, Is that whether it's a diagnostic or a normal, just a, a non-multiple choice question. Is this a good question? How could we improve it? Are there any ambiguities in it? Because I think planning questions gets 
teachers of all experiences, all preferences, working together in a really effective way. I'm not convinced the same is true when teachers joint plan lessons. And maybe this is just my experience, but I think that teachers have so, so many contrasting views from each other that in the end you almost end up with a compromise that no one's happy with and just just to kind of go into the specifics of this i think if we we look back at your lesson at the start that you described amir i could imagine joint planning the retrieval thing would be fine um i i could imagine that that being something that teachers could do together i could even start to imagine joint planning the examples that are used in the kind of exposition part of your lesson but then we get issues like right what activity are the kids going to use well i want to use group work no well I want to use kind of individual work well I want to use paired work I want kids to have access to the answers I don't I want to use some more problem solving things early on I don't and then you get things like well I want to use technology so I want to use Desmos well I don't know how to use that but no it's Desmos is integral for this demonstration yeah but I don't know how to use it and do you see what I mean you end up getting conflicts that and you end up with a lesson that satisfies nobody is that something you've experienced and is there a way around it there is a way around it. I think a lot of those issues come from kind of the fine level detail in terms of what will go on in the, in the class, if you see what I mean. Where for me, I'm kind of getting staff to think about kind of key points in that journey of what they're going to be studying and what they're going to be looking at. Like you say, yes, pre-planning, you know, like pre-planning what's going to be retrieved, the questions are going to be there, that sort of thing. You know, the kind of questions you're going to be asking. But there has to be some sort of autonomy for the teacher then to say, right, for my class, how can I execute this? For me, in terms of what skills that I brought, but also for my students, if you if you just take what's being planned, and like I say, some sort of compromise has happened, and everyone's kind of in the middle of where they want to be, but nobody's really happy. Then actually, if nobody's really happy, they don't believe in the lesson, and then the, that actually will come across in when they're teaching it. And I think, what what for for, for me, what, like I say, the, the the comeback to that would say that the, there's there's a core kind of set of things that make up the plan that we put together. And you can develop those as you want, but there's a starting point here that we've given you that takes out so much of your time that the time that you do have can be focusing on how you execute that for your class. Do you see where I'm coming from? If you want to use Desmos, use Desmos. If you don't use Desmos, don't use Desmos. If, you, if you're concerned that you need to slow things down, slow things down. And although that's a little bit more planning, and although that takes a little bit more time off the teacher than what it would be if everything was pre-planned, actually, that's that's where you you know you 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 are adapting to the needs of your students. I think, and, and the needs of yourself. I think that's really important. Yeah, no, I, I think I'm, I'm on board with this, Amir. And I wonder, just just for the specifics, because I know listeners love the the, the actual te- the fine details of this. What does what does this actually look like? Are we talking kind of a shared area on the school network where here is year eight fractions, lesson one, we go into a folder and is there like a PowerPoint, a worksheet and a set of questions or is it is it not as organized as that? Well, what does this kind of joint planning and then sharing of, of those lessons, well, what does it actually look like? So, OK, this is. This is how, how we were running things, and I think you know that this is the, in terms of an exemplar, really. So, first of all, the, the scheme of work that we were using was, was based, you know, was very very structured around the arc mathematics mastery kind of outline sort of scheme. So, um, and then within that, what we start to do is break break things down week by week because 
we wanted to kind of see the week as kind of the you know the the the, the, the time frame for the journey. I know I talked about before about arbitrary amounts of time, but I think a week is fair enough. Um, and then start to say right, okay, what are we looking? What we're we going to look at this week with this this this. So like I said, what where do we want them to get onto, and then start to put that together. But then that would all be organised. It would literally be organised week by week. Um, but again, that's down to the teacher in terms of what is appropriate. For me, I'm not saying that uh, this week we're all doing the same things because the kind of gen- the, kind of the concepts are more general. And they have, I need to I need to be having that time to go into lessons and make sure that staff are adapting that. But yeah, there was there was, a, there was always kind of a it was like a, a slideshow, so a smart notebook or a PowerPoint, those sorts of things. There was, there was resources for the review lesson because, like I said, if there wasn't something that was flagged up in the retrieval practice, we would do some sort of review, again, retrieving something from previously. So that would, you know, there would there'd be time to plan for that. There would be, be an assessment, you know, and actually, to be fair, this, some people see this as controversial, but it would be the same, you know, a 10-minute assessment for every class because we wanted to know whereabouts in terms of their understanding of that topic they were at, and that would inform what their broader skill set was in terms of the bigger picture for maths. Now, some people will say, well, that's not really fair on those students who, you know, got broad ranges of ability. Well, actually, it was, you know, again, we were focusing on the skill there, and then the teacher could add in other assessments or develop another assessment, an early assessment if they wanted to, but there were core sort of things that I wanted them to achieve. And that that was pre-existing, but in the you know in the in the conversation happening in the meetings, you know it was literally like I say sitting down as pairs, thinking about learning, planning that together, and then coming back together at the end and saying, okay, where are we with year seven? Where are we year eight? Where are we year nine? And constantly reinforcing the the message that this is not the end of your planning for this week. You know, next week is usually like a week or a week or two in advance. It's not the end of your planning for this stage. The next thing now is for you to go away as teachers and say, right, well, this is where we kind of want to take students. What's my input there to help the students that I'm responsible for be involved in that? Got it. Fantastic. And I'm going to I want to dig into the uh, the finer details of your schemes of work, your homeworks and assessments um, a little later. But just uh, just a couple more things on on running a maths department, um, Amir, that I'm interested in. You, you touched a little bit there about departmental meetings. And I know this is something that uh, that I've certainly looked to change in, in both the schools that I've spent most of my times in. What do what what do your departmental meetings look like, both in terms of the frequency that they happen and, and what actually happens in them? Um, as much as possible, department meetings were always about teaching and learning. So, in administrative things, unless they were urgent, tended I tended to communicate via email or speak one to one to people because that that time as a department is really precious. And I think you know there are some things that need to be flagged up and notes and things like that. But you know, like school policies and things like that aren't normally up for debate. You know, if it's administrative sort of stuff, then it's administrative sort of stuff. So that thing, you know, that's the, that can be communicated in that sort of way or one-to-one. You know, department meeting time should be about developing practice in that subject. So really, the vast majority of the time was looking at planning, looking at pedagogy. Sometimes we'd look at a particular area and think about standard ways of working, but most of the time was was looking at how we would, you know, put things together in terms of moving forward with what we want students to learn. 
And can I just ask there, Amir, just on that, but practically what, what does that look like? So I hear a lot of heads of departments say that I want to get more teaching and learning um, in my departmental meetings. I want to move away from admin. I want it more pedagogically focused. But what does that actually look like? What, what's been effective for you to actually get departmental meetings focused on the things that matter? Listen, I mean, again, try different things, but usually what would happen and what I try to do is flag up beforehand, this is what we're going to be focused on. Focus on. If there's any kind of pre-reading or anything like that that I might want to explore, then we might talk about that. But um, quite a lot of the time, staff already know well, what we're going to be planning and we're going to be talking about particular topics. And within their groups that they are planning those lessons around, they'll talk about the pedagogy. In fact, I'd be quite you know, autonomous in that sort of approach. Because I'll be doing the planning as well. I won't just be like overseeing. I'll be yes. involved. In, in, in the mix if you see what I mean um, but those, those conversations you know what do we think that works that sort of thing will come about and we might even pause for a minute and discuss a particular area but it's quite you know there's quite quite dynamic and quite fluid in, sort of, in terms of how that comes about um, it's not it's not for you know, the, the, you know there's the, the structure in terms of the plan but it's not for the structure right at this point we'll talk about this at this point we'll talk about this it's, it's what's right and appropriate for the situation that we're at that point there might have been something that comes up in the week that we need to address and we'll, we'll, we'll apply sometimes that we might need to talk about the assessment okay and what we found in the assessment how we're going to address that in terms of teaching and learning but no there's, there's, it, 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 it's, it's an adaptive sort of situation to see what I mean which you know I don't think really answers your question, but I think I think it's, it's down to, like I say, there's, there's, we've got some things we want to come up, get out of, the, out of the time. What are they? How are we going to achieve them? And that's literally it. I mean, the reason the reason I ask. Oh, sorry, I'm just going to cough on sec. And the reason I ask is because I what. I don't think the following thing that I'm going to describe works, and I'm interested in, in your take on it, and I'm just looking to see whether this can be improved. And that's where you, you get a department together and you say, right, let's focus on straight line graphs, for example. And you announce in advance that we're going to be focusing on straight line graphs. So that I love that because it gives people a chance to think it through. It's not just sprung on them there and then. But it's, right, can everybody bring to the department a resource that they've used for teaching straight line graphs. Do you know what I mean? And you see this, and then and then people are just on Tez or whatever the night before, and all right, I found a five-star resource on straight line graphs. So here's a PowerPoint that you might want to use on straight line graphs. Right, brilliant, thank you. And um, someone else comes up, here's some kind of, I don't know, Desmos or something on, on straight line graphs. I'm not convinced that works. Again, for the same reason that I mentioned before, that, well, and we both talk, talked about that, Planning shouldn't start with the resource. It shouldn't be a case of, have you got anything good on this? Well, I've got something good that works for me with a particular class in a particular moment on a particular day, but it doesn't mean that if you just try and do it, it's, it's going to be as successful for you. So uh, I'm a bit anti that. So my question to you, Amir, is are you, do you feel the same? And if, if not, why not? And if so... To take that straight line graph example, if you were head of department and, and you want you knew that on the year nine scheme of work, straight, straight line graphs are coming up in a couple of weeks, how do we focus the discussion and make it a bit more effective? I think, yeah, I, I wouldn't say to staff, find out what you can and find all the resources you can, because again, that's just, it's waste, it's wasted time. I think what, you know, and again, it's, it's resources, picking resources as a proxy for quality planning, if you see what I mean. Because I don't, I, I I need to be careful. I put this put this across, but I think you can you can have a bad resource 
and still teach a good lesson. I think you can have a good resource and teach a bad lesson. Do you see what I'm saying? Yes. And I think that's the same, you know, that's why, again, that's another reason why, you know, look to, you know, in terms of resources and things like that, that's why, look at, you know, when you go on, you know, I know you're, I know you're involved with testing, and, you know, I, I am a big fan of testing, all that sort of stuff, but you can spend ages on the test resource bank and all that sort of thing, looking for different things. And my issue with that is that they, they are created by people who perhaps don't have the time to really sit down and think about how that resource comes together, how that lesson plans together, how that structure comes together. For me, if you're choosing a resource, you need to look at sources. I mean, we talked about, you know, um, Dan Taylor and Craig Devons and the CIMT and all these people, Ed, you know, and Joe's curated a lot of resources as well. You need to be looking in that direction because you know their quality. Do you see where I'm coming from? You know, that's the time's been invested on it. So for me, I would say, that's why I said about that limited pool of resources. I say to staff, we'll go here first, and if there's nothing that we're really happy with in terms of a resource, then then we'll have to make it. But we'll not spend, you know, I'll not send them off on a week's journey looking for the, the, the perfect straight because Because one, it isn't there. You've just alluded to that. Everybody does things differently. The perfect resource for one person is not the perfect resource for another person because we all have our different ways of, of starting, you know, and looking at different things. So I think, I think for me, what, we tend, what, I, what I kind of tend to do is say, right, just, you know, have a look at these sources. If there's something that's decent, you know, that's great. But remember, the biggest effect is not actually going to be the resource, it's going to be you. So think about you and how you how you develop that learning in that student. Do you see where I'm coming from? I do. No, that, that makes perfect sense to me. And just kind of moving on with this department thing, um, a, a couple of specifics and, and slightly kind of controversial ones. Um, firstly, and this is something I've, I've only been really considering in the, in the last kind of couple of weeks or so, so I thought you're the perfect person to ask for this. Um, how do you decide as a head of department which teachers get which classes? And just just to, to tell you where where my kind of thinking comes from on this, in, in, in both in both the schools I've worked with, um, it's been very much the culture to mix things around. So if you get a top set, year seven, one year, you're probably either going to get a bottom set or a, or a middle set. This is assuming year seven and eight are, are setted. And likewise, you're unlikely to get a top set year 11, two years in a row and so on. And the idea here is, well, two ideas, really. Um, it's seen as good kind of practice to develop all round teachers uh, if you're experiencing diff teaching different styles of classes and so on. And also there's a, there's a, a sense of fairness that a lot of teachers would see it as um, a, a quite a uh, I mean, this is going to sound terrible, but a lot of teachers enjoy teaching top sets um, more than they would enjoy teaching bottom sets. Or, or, for example, a classic kind of middle set year 11 might be seen. The old CD borderline might be seen as quite of a challenge and so on. But as far as I can see, and I've not, I've not read a great deal of research, but that that I've seen really suggests that teachers specialising is a much better idea that giving the, the, the same teacher the same type of class and I know every class is different but as, as much as possible the same achievement level of class year upon year upon year develops their skill set and it just makes them better and better and I've experienced this myself and Bruno already spoke about it that when he used to teach um, all the year group across a, 
day um, and he would teach the same lesson three or four times. By the time he taught that fourth lesson, he was absolutely nailing it. And you can imagine that being a similar thing with the department that over a longer period of time, that if you're teaching year 11, middle set, year upon year upon year, you are just getting better and better and better as opposed to next year you've a top set, then you've a bottom set and so on. So after that convoluted little intro, <laughs> my, my, my question to you, Amir, is yeah, what do you do? How do you decide which teachers get which classes? I think it's interesting because in Curiel now, I'm starting, I'm, I'm starting to become responsible for things like curriculum and timetable and things like that. I think first and foremost, it is timetable dependent as a whole school timetable. But that said, I, I do agree that there's certain teachers are better with certain groups in terms of you know, the relationships with students or their kind of pedagogical approach, that sort of thing. So if I look back at in, in my past teaching, you know, I've taught top sets, but, you know, I was, a lot of the time I tended to go for that kind of middle, kind of, like you said, the classic sort of CD board line because, you know, as a, as a leader, you know, they're the, from that point of view, they're the, they're the classes that are going to make the difference in terms of our outcomes, and I feel responsible for that. So I, have to look, I want to learn what is it that the things that, you know, students are finding difficult to kind of get over that line. Now, that's my specialism. I know other math teachers who are brilliant with top sets, so why put them with, you know, more lower ability sets who, you know, aren't haven't got that buy into the subject. Do you see where I'm coming from? Haven't got that sort of, um, you know, engagement and love for the subject that the top set has because what that does is that, that has a different dynamic in the classroom. I, you know, I, I, I have taught top sets and if I'm honest, you know, my point of view, as I say, is always about engaging students and making them feel su- su- successful and all that sort of thing. That is a different approach to what you need to talk set. Top sets is about rigour and scholarship and, you know, the understanding of where they're going to go and look, look at things at A-level and those sorts of things. And, and this, and I know how this is going to sound, and I'm not capping students in any way, shape or form, but there are going to be students in your groups who are not bothered about that. They're not going to be looking to study A-level maths and those sorts of things, particularly in year 11. In year 11, they just want, you know, from a pragmatic side of things, they just want to be a success in the subject so they can, they can achieve something that's going to open some doors for them in terms of their future. And that... Having an understanding of the teacher dictates what you know where your strengths are, and I think as a leader, you know, I, w- I would be loath to say to somebody, right, you've had top set all this time, okay, now it's about you know get your sleeves rolled up because I'm putting you in bottom set next year. You know, it's, it's just not it's not going to be effective. All that's going to happen is that person's going to be like, well, I've got to completely think, you know, really think deeper about the pedagogical practice. You know, um, you know they're going to have the, they're going to be learning on the job, and you think about you know the amount we talk about lost time. Those first few lessons where that teacher is adapting themselves to those those uh, those classes is lost time, you know, because they're finding the feet with those classes. Whereas if you're a teacher who's used to teaching those classes, who knows how those classes take, has got that experience, you're going to be off and running so much quicker. Yeah, I I I hundred percent agree with you. So are are we? Are, is that what we're advising then? Teachers should specialise because again, I, I I guess there are downsides to this. That well, firstly, how do you know what your speciality is unless you've you've tried you've tried different things? And then there's the fairness aspect. I mean, I, a, a teacher may be particularly good at teaching those CD borderline, but wants wants a change, doesn't want to always do that. Wants some variety. So, w- w- what do we do, Amir? Do do we mix or do do we specialise? 
it's, it's a tricky one. I think you need to understand and have the conversation with the members of staff involved. Like, I know there'll be one person listening to this, and she's brilliant with, with lower boobs, absolutely brilliant lower boobs. And I asked her, I said, do you fancy teaching, you know, a top set? We've got a uh, member of staff who've gone on maternity. She got top set, and I said, you know, you know the students, do you fancy teaching them? And she said, no, my, my, what I want to do, I'm, 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 I'm quite happy with the groups that I've got. I know in terms of I've got the relationships with them. And, you know, I know it's my specialism to, to, to help those students move forward. If I go to a top group, I've got to really raise my game in terms of my, you know, my understanding of the subject and where things kind of go. And not to demean that she doesn't know her maths, because she's an excellent mathematician and she's an excellent teacher. But, like I say, there's certain things you do with top sets that you don't do with lower groups. And I think that's what she, she was very aware of. And I think, I think that's, there is a, you know, as always in these things, it's not black and white, there's some middle ground that is, you know, is ultimately determined by how the timetable is put together. You know, you can't go, well, I'm going to put so-and-so in this group and then realise that you can't do that because of how the timetable is structured. But you can tailor it a little bit. You have got to have a bit of fairness, especially with new teachers as well. I mean, I, I think my first year, first year of teaching, I had top set year 10, you know, and that was, I, you know, I found that harder than the lower group in year 10 on the other side of the new group that I had. And the reason for that is because they were super bright. And at first, I, I think I underestimated them a little bit and they, they felt a bit patronised, I think. And, 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 and so, therefore, I had to learn that and really push them on. Whereas the other group, it was just about keeping them up there, getting them a success. And I found that a little bit easier at the time. Yeah, I, I, I think you're right. And I think... As you said, there is, and it's a, a tricky one to, to can spring on you here, but I know that it's something that a lot of heads of department consider, and it's, I think it's something important to discuss. And I'll tell you what, I mean, if you thought that was controversial, well, wait to hear this next one, because I was, I was speaking... Um, <clears throat> sorry just this morning with with danny quinn just over twitter and i said i mentioned that i had you coming on the show and i said um have you got any questions that you'd like me to ask him here and she always comes up with a classic so what she wanted to ask and again feel free i don't want you to go into specifics as this but be, be as general as you like but how good or bad can a head of department or even a teacher be depending on the, your head the SLT and the kind of school culture because obviously you've been head of department in, in a number of places now are you very much constrained by things that are outside of your control and, and does that affect your ability to be an effective head of department and if so do you have any advice because there'll be lots of people listening to this podcast saying I would love to do what Amir is talking about here and especially when we go on to speak about schemes of work I would love to do this but I can't have have you been in that position yourself, and and what what can heads of department do about it? Danny Quinn is in serious bother asking that question. <laughs> uh, I'll catch up with this. You'll know. Uh, um, I yeah, I have I have been in that scenario, and well, yeah, as you've said, from a variety in a variety of different ways, where you have different levels of autonomy in terms of how you can shape things. That does come down to the ethos of the school, and I think when you take that position in that school, you need to be very careful that you understand that. Um, and that's a lesson I've learned um, in the past and recently. I think um, you, if, you know, certain schools have a certain way because it fits into their ethos and vision as a school. And you have to be careful that you, like subjects, 
subjects can't go maverick. They have to be aligned with what the school's trying to achieve. But within that, you can then start to think about how you can plan those, plan the things that you want to achieve. I think you can't just go, oh, well, the school wants it this way, we're never going to get what we want. You've got to think, well, these are the constraints that I have. This is where I want to go. What kind of time frame have I got in order to achieve things? And, you know, what, what work do we need to do? Sometimes it's, sometimes you will butt heads. And I've, I've had that experience. And I know I'm, I'm, I'm wondering if one of my former heads will be listening to this because he's into what, into a lot of what you're looking at right now in terms of theory. And, and, and we did butt heads. And I, I was a little bit arrogant about it in terms of, well, you don't understand the subject. But from his point of view, is that I didn't really understand the school, if you see what yes, I'm coming from. Yes. And I think, um, and I think that's, that's kind of my answer. It's not really an answer. It's more of a, uh, a ramble, really. But it, it all comes down, I mean, I'll, I'll be honest. I, I took on a position in, in, in one school where... Um, I, I was only there for two terms, um, and there, there, there were lots of reasons for that, but one of them was the realisation that I hadn't done that process of really thinking about what I was walking into in terms of how the ethos of the vision of the school was, what the makeup of it was, and what my role would be, all that sort of thing. And that happens in any job that you apply for. So I think you've got to be really careful about that. And it's diff- it is difficult when... You, you know, until you take up that job, you don't really know what things are really like on the ground. You get, you know, you go for the interview day, you might go for a visit for, and then you get the sell. Of course, you do. But I think, especially now with you know the kind of professional networks that we've got and the you know the advantage that those things have, I think those sorts of conversations we can start to have. You know, and I, you know, and, and I know, and I know why Danny asked. I, I do know why Danny asked that question, and I think that that's re- I think. That's one thing we can do as teachers is, you know, talk, you know, not too openly, because I think you have to be careful about, you know, the, the relationship with our school, but we talk openly about, you know, if you come into our school, this is what, this is what it's going to look like in terms of the expectations. And one thing I will say is that at Dixon Trinity, Luke Sparks is really clear on that in terms of, as a head teacher, as a head teacher he says, you know, you go for the interview and he says, this is what we expect at the school. You know, this is what we this is what we want to achieve. You know, and they, they, that school has, 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 has achieved some amazing results last year. You know, 2017, amazing results. I think they're eighth in the progress tables in the first GCSE year, and that's because he's got this, an absolute pure vision of what he wants to achieve. And he makes it really clear. He says, you know, you might want to work at a successful school, but this might not be the school for you. And I think that's the question heads of department have to ask. If you're already existing in that school, do you want to be a head of department in that context? And if you're not, and you're coming into that school, you really need to do kind of due diligence in terms of moving into that role. Do you see where I'm coming from? Yeah, I think that's I think that's super, it's superb advice. It's a it's a really really good answer that um, Amir, because I think what's 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 coming out of that for me is that. You've got to almost have honesty on both sides. Like it's, it does nobody any favors if a head of department comes to interview and the school puts on a false picture of what it's about, and the head of department puts on a false picture about what they expect and the ideas that they have, and so on. And 
because it's not going to do anybody any favours. It's going to lead to a, a really difficult situation. And I think you're right. I think it's important that prospective heads of department go and see schools, uh, ideally twice. I, I always advise that. And I know it's not always feasible, but try and go in on two separate days. You can kind of put on a show for the first time, but then it's often kind of cracks and reality start to come through the second time you see something. So I think that that's really, really important. But yeah, just just honesty, speaking to people and just being being clear what you want to do. If you're a new head of department coming in and you've got ideas that you want to bring in, I would be tempted at interview to say, look, this these are three things that I want to do. Will you support me on this? And getting some kind of commitment there and then because you don't want to be having that conversation when you've signed the contract, you've quit your other job and then you figure out that it's not going to be that supporting environment. So I think you're right in it. Does that, does that make sense? Yeah, it does. And I think um, one, one, of the, one thing that you, I, I, I mean, I, I, I've learned that lesson. I've learned that lesson. You have to do that due diligence. And you, and you as, a, as a personality, really have to take on board what, you know, like I said, Luke, Luke was always very good at that. He was saying, this is what I want. You know, as a head teacher, as a school, this is what we want to achieve. And this is how we're going to do it. And this is what you will see, and this is what we expect. And I think um, I think there's a responsibility on schools to share that. I mean, my, my, my new role. I mean, I've only started in January, but my new role, my the, the principal is again being really good on that. This is what we want to achieve. This is where we want things to go. We've got our challenges. This is why I see you know the development of this. This is what we want you to bring. All these sorts of things. And then, you know, in the interview, it's you then saying, well, this is what I want to bring. And are we on the same hymn sheet? Because if we are, brilliant. I'll have the job. And if we're not, excellent. this isn't right for me, if you see where I'm coming from. But that is that is down, I think, to, you know, again, you know, I talked earlier about um, resource suppliers, you know, teachers going to resource suppliers and saying, this is what we want. I think, again, teachers sometimes can be a bit like, I just want to do a good job. And I think more and more these days and the level of accountability and drive and focus that we see in schools, I think it's more about, as much as anything, do you fit? Have you got the right personality? Can you do the things that you want you to do? Um, And then you can be successful because if not, you know, you can find out very quickly, and I, you know, that that's not the right situation for you. And we all know as teachers that it's difficult, therefore, because sometimes, you know, if you're only at short, this school for a short period of time and deciding you're going, that is sending up so many red flags to the school that you're at and the school and schools that you want to go to because they're like, well, why are you, what's, what's the issue there, if you see what I mean? I, I do, and I think it also goes to the level of just just a, a normal teacher, a non-head of departments, because I, I I see lots of teachers at, at conferences, and they'll come up to me afterwards and say things like, "Yeah, I enjoyed that. I'd love to do that, but I, I can't do that in my school." And that must be so frustrating. That that must be just demoralising to, to want to do something and that you know works, or you want to have the opportunity to see if it works or not, and not have that opportunity to do it for whatever reason so i think the advice that we're saying amir it it, it kind of trans- it goes across equally or it applies equally to to teachers applying for jobs go into the school a couple of times and in interview 
say ask the questions will i be able to try this out i have done some reading on this i believe it works will i be able to do this strategy or, or bring 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 this idea in and if not if you can't then at least you're better informed and you've got to decide okay if I, I desperately need a job for whatever reason okay maybe i'll still take it but at least you're not going in there with your eyes closed ready for a nasty surprise in september and um, so i think yeah just this whole idea of being better informed and not being afraid to ask questions there and then in the moment and obviously if, you, if you've got an idea i want to do this tell them why you want to do it tell you what you've read what you've seen why you believe it'll work and hopefully you'll find most schools will be amenable to it but if they're not going to be then then it's probably time to think am i going to be happy here because teaching's a hard enough job as it is with the workload the behavior and all that you if you're not in a department that that is going the direction that you believe it should be going in it i can only imagine it will be a living hell so would you agree there amir that it is all it's equally um advisable to do that if you're a teacher going for a job yeah and it, i mean it's advisable in any sort of career to do that sort of thing i think you know when you're starting out i mean you look i mean when you get trainees and, and people starting out on that journey then you, you, I mean, I mean, I trained at Altrincham Grammar and High Tech, and they were two of the most contrasting schools you'll ever have. And but that shaped for me what I wanted, with the direction I wanted to go. And I enjoyed Altrincham Grammar, I enjoyed the kind of you know the level of outcomes and and, and and the experience there. And but it was high tech because you know I came from a similar background myself, and I found it really hard, really hard in that time, you know, because. But, because I was still learning, but actually that's, that informed me so much more and drove, drove me so much more into the decision that I wanted to make. So certainly, even at training level, you know, get the, you know, you know, when you're talking to your tutor and those sort of things, say, you know, I want that real contrast. Don't just send me to two leafy suburbs. Yes. All right, you know, because that'll tell me tell me nothing. You know, go to a tough school, go to a, you know, a relatively easier school. And they will, they will equally have their own challenges, very different challenges, but you need to know what's bad for you. I mean, you know, pretty much, mostly, I've worked in, you know, I've pretty much worked all across South Yorkshire. It's one of the most deprived areas in Europe, never mind Britain, but that's, that means something to me. It's part of what I want to do, and I think that's what you've got to be, that's, that, that internal drive that pushes you forward, you know, you can't just have that attitude and go, like, say, go and teach it at grammar school, because you probably won't fit. Do you see where I'm coming from? I do. That's that's great advice, that, Amir. And I think a lot of people um, feel very reassured and, and better informed for that. So no, th thanks so much for that. And I want to move now. There's two kind of big last things I want to talk to you about. We're going to come to schemes of work in a, in a couple of minutes because I, I just want to dig into a couple of specifics there because we've had lots of requests about that. But first, ju I just want to speak to you about something different. And that, that's the concept of deep work because it was just sheer coincidence um, whenever I invited you on the show and I started um, going back over some of your blog posts that I realized that, that you were interested in the concept of deep work as well because it's, it's one of my favorite books of the last couple of years, Cal New Newport's Deep Work. And every time I read a book and i experienced this when i read peak by um, andreas erickson and, and robert Poole. as soon as i'm reading it i'm always thinking how can i apply this to teaching what what can what can i get out of this and it's it's the curse of being a teacher that it creeps into every aspect of your life so i was exactly the same when i was reading deep work thinking to myself right what what what, what can i get out of this both in terms of teaching and also um, helping my students learn better and so on so I wonder, because I'm, I'm going to advise anyone to, to, to read this book. I think it's fascinating, um, whatever profession you're in. But, but for you, what, what was your main takeaway from the book, Amir? I think, 
I think my main takeaway is that, obviously, I mean, we have to be careful about this concept of 21st century skills, right? But Newport's argument in the book is that we are the, the, the shifting modern world in terms of automation and those sorts of things and the, the sheer pace of change in technology. What that's meaning is, is that a lot of the skills that people have um, are, can be automated and therefore... You know, unfortunately, it means that, how can I put this, there, is, there has to be a shift in terms of um, what people are able to contribute into to society, if you see what I mean, in terms, of, in terms of industry, in terms of economy, and those sort of things. And that sounds quite uh, dystopian in a way, but I, I, you know, there is some value in that thing. You know, even down to things like, you know, self, self-driving cars and things like that. There's slowly but surely there's things that people used to be really good at that now it's just like a machine can do that. And that's, that has been how, you know, society has moved. And what Newport is saying is that because of that context, that humans, you know, individuals have to develop. If they want to be successful and they want to, you know, make a real contribution to society, then you've got to be able to develop these like, really rare and valuable skills that will make a difference in that and they come from having you know an ability to think really hard about difficult problems and then say right okay I've really thought about this what is the thing that I need to create that's going to make something different and beyond what is possibly going to be automated to a sense do you see where I'm coming from? Yeah and I took that away too and I must admit when I was reading it first I, alarm bells were going off in my head because as soon as I see 21st century skills I think uh oh please god don't be don't yeah. be one of these things <laughs> But, but what I like about it is he's very much aware that this this ability to think deep is dependent on knowledge. It's not the case that you could suddenly get into this state of deep work and suddenly come up with some amazing algebraic discovery unless you've got those fundamentals in place. So uh, that was certainly what I took from it, that that knowledge is still at the heart of it. But then once we've got this knowledge, it's then about getting into this almost state of mind where we can think deeper and have greater insights. W- would that be fair, Amir? Yeah, and I think also, I think that, that learning from me about that was because, you know, I'm a bit of a knowledge kleptomaniac. I am, you know, I'm the person who will sit and watch University Challenge and, you know, I'm not bragging, we'll answer you know, <laughs> all the questions. You see what I mean? And my wife will turn around and it'll be some question about some king of the Holy Roman Empire. She'll turn around and go, how do you know that? And I think what I discovered there is actually that is that's detracting from what I'm possibly capable of doing because I've got that sort of kind of broad sort of knowledge. It's distracting me from being able to think really deeply and really hard about things that I have real depth of knowledge about. And I think that struck me as the, as the you know, we, we talked about earlier about students you know, you can't put students on until they've got that real depth of understanding, the factual response, you know, the, the, the understand the facts, sorry, the, 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 the automatic response in terms of basic skills and that sort of thing. Until they can do that, you can't really push them forward. It's that, you know, going to that novice and expert sort of situation as well as cognitive load theory, you know, you've got to treat novices like novices. You can't just say you are going to become an expert, so therefore I will treat you like an expert. And that sounds patronising, but that's what Newport's point is, is that you can't go into something that you don't really have any knowledge about and think really deeply about it. I mean, his previous book is uh, so good, I can't ignore you. And I'm just rereading that again at the moment. And what Newport talks about there is this idea of career capital. 
he talks about these people who go off and follow the passion, you know, they decide to be like yoga instructors, but they've worked in marketing for years, and they've got no idea of yoga, and what happens is they go into this, they go into this job having no understanding about it, and completely crash and burn, and that analogy we can place and teach it, if we don't develop that kind of, the underlying structures, the factual skills, the, sorry, the factual knowledge, the, 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 the skills that they need to acquire, it's, it's, it's absolutely pointless, because you know, it's like, you know, I remember teaching strategy as well as told about, you know, put a really hard problem at the start of the lesson, you know, to really get them hooked into, you know, we're going to be able to achieve this by the end of the lesson. I'm just thinking, looking back at that, I got that because you're trying to, you know, say, you know, we're going to get to that point. But if it bears no relevance at all, and I mean in terms of difficulty, not in terms of the topic, then that is setting up students to fail. I mean, I remember going, again, back to what uh, Robert Bjork and Elizabeth Bjork talked about, about pre-testing. You know, that pre-test might have, you know, they might never have seen those things before, so that you, you engage in that sort of level of curiosity. I kind of get that. I do get that. But at the same time, you know, don't try and get students to think about things that they've got no sort of connection to in terms of either the, the societal understanding or their ability to think about that problem so from a, a knowledge point of view. Yeah, I, 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 I fully agree with you there, Amir. And it was funny, I was I was describing this book to a, to a work colleague and I, I tried to kind of do it justice, but I clearly didn't because after my kind of five minute explanation, he said, so what? just avoid distractions is, is is that the main point of the book and i was like no no there's there's so much more than that but i wonder what what are the implications then from, from your reading of this amir how can it how can it help teachers and how can it help students and um, if it can i mean the, the difficult i mean in terms of teaching i mean it's difficult because as we as you know the teaching the, the teaching day you can schedule it and you know, you'll say, I'm doing this at this point, I've definitely got this lesson and that sort of stuff. But then something will come up and you know, knock your schedule out in terms of the time you've got outside your lessons. Um, in the book, Newport talks about kind of different levels of deep work. And he talks first of all about this kind of monastic deep work. So you've got these like university professors like um, I think it's Donald Knuth who, who looks at computer programming, he, he doesn't he doesn't have an email address. He doesn't have a website or a blog or anything like that. If you want to contact him, you send a letter to a PO box that his secretary looks that his secretary looks at and completely shuts him up. Shuts him up because he wants to concentrate on learning. Can't do that in teaching. I'd love to be able to do that. You can't do that. But what you need to be able to do is kind of find the time in terms of um, you know real you know go back to that collaborative planning thing. That is a that is a deep work sort of approach in the sense of. We are shutting off everything, the kind of, you know, the whirlwind around what goes on on a day-to-day basis. We've got this period of time where we can really think about what we want our students to achieve. And by boxing that time off, yeah, it is about, you know, getting rid of distractions and that sort of thing. But it's really about turning your, turn your focus on what is going to make the biggest difference in terms of what you want to achieve and getting really good at it as well. Yeah, I, I think you're right. And there was, I mean, firstly, it relates back to something we spoke about earlier on about this this teacher specialisation. That I would imagine Newport would be more of a fan of teachers specialising in one particular area, whether it be middle set year sevens or, or, or t- sorry, middle set year elevens or, or top set year elevens, because that's when we can focus all our attention on thinking how to get better at that, as opposed to kind of diversifying our limited um, attention span and so on. So that that was certainly one thing. 
thing I took away from it. But the other was was about this 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 kind of period of distraction. And I know myself that if I've got something important to do um, during a school day, I'll think right, I'm free period three, so I'm going to get it done there, and I'm going to get all my kind of my big job I've got to get done, all my thinking done there. And I'll sit in the maths uh, I'll sit in the maths office. And the first thing that will happen is an email will come through because I've got my email tab open. So I'll just, it'll catch my eye and I think, right, I'll just have a quick look at that there. I'll deal with that. And it'll only take me 30 seconds to deal with it. But Newport, as far as I can see, his argument is that 30 seconds is really damaging because then that, the kind of almost like the residue of thinking about that email doesn't, doesn't disappear and you've got to get back into the state of deep thought that you're in before. But I'll sort that out. And the next thing, there'll be a knock at the door and a kid will come <laughs> and they want an exercise book or something. So just the act of getting up and giving the kid it takes me 10-15 seconds but the impact of it is a lot longer and and the other thing the final um, example is just a colleague innocently asking you something like either can you take a look at this or have you seen this or just asking any old thing again just throws you out of this this ability to get into this deep state so I was thinking firstly when I read it I got frustrated because I, th- I, I thought during the work day I don't think I can ever get into the state to be able to think deeply so then I thought maybe it's a case of free periods and stuff just getting all the admin side of things sorted out there the, the kind of shallow work that, that Newport talks about and perhaps it's setting aside times in the day when you know you're not going to be disturbed so it may be getting into school half an hour early Earlier, or staying half an hour later at night but going into a classroom where you know nobody's going to be around and that and scheduling in your deep work there because for, for, for me that's kind of Newport's biggest takeaway don't just kind of let deep work happen schedule it in make sure you you create the conditions that you're not going to have those distractions around get yourself into that state of deep work and that's when your best thinking is going to happen and yeah. do, does that make sense it does and I think we have to be careful in that message about, you said before about, say, half an hour before you'd normally get in, half an hour or an hour after. Yes. Because what we're not saying is that we want... <laughs> it, you, going back to that, I mean, I think we'll explore Charlotte, but the idea is as much as possible, you know I said before about with the lead department taking, as much as possible, that sometime opportunity out of the equation so that you know that what's going on for teachers is quality is really important. And that's a difficult one to teach. You're absolutely right. I mean, I looked at my day yesterday and, you know, uh, you know, I'm, <laughs> I'm vice principal now and I need to be out and about and seeing students and dealing with matters. And you know what school's like. Things just come up time and time again. And sometimes you need to be speaking to one person up and you're constantly switching. And Newport says that's, that's this, that is damaging. Yeah, but that's what teaching's about. And I think yes. one thing that I've learned with lots of these things, I'm, 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 again, Newport actually just says don't do this, is to pick the bits that work for you. And I think he said don't do that. Well, I think that's fine in a kind of purely knowledge work, you know, scheduled time sort of context or when you know things are going to happen on a certain point, a certain day and that sort of thing. That is fine. But for teachers, there's a real challenge there. I think... I mean, I do like to get in the morning and go, right, I need to think about my day. I do like, I mean, I'm, I, I never used to do this. I used to be quite on the fly with but what I do now, if I've got a, a meeting with somebody or I want to discuss something, I really think deeply about what I want to get out of that meeting, what the kind of questions I'm going to ask. So that, I'm, I mean, I've just done it. To be fair, Craig, before this interview, I've done exactly the same thing. I've mind mapped everything around all the things that I think we're going to talk about. Because... That then, you know, I'm hoping that 
that clarifies things better in terms of what I'm trying to put across. And it's the same within a meeting. That meet, Meetings are really tricky because some people say, oh, don't have meetings, just speak, talk to people face to face. But actually, if you design a meeting well and you sit, with, sit into an environment and, and kind of close off that environment and you know you can concentrate on that time, if you structure the kind of things in terms of what we're going to talk about, what the outcomes are, those sorts of things, meetings can be really productive. And I think there was kind of there was a maybe a couple of years ago where some people said, "Oh, meetings are pointless. Well, stand up meetings will just fire things off." Well, actually, again, it's that that thought process beforehand that needs to take place. And I think that's what Newport's trying to get at is really think about the things that you, you are responsible for and deliver them better than trying to just do loads of things and trying to you know achieve so many things and then not really executing that well. Um, I think that for me, that's what I took away from it. Now, in terms of time, totally. I think you're right. You know, we've been there. We've been sat in the office, and then some student will come, and you've got an email, blah blah blah. blah. I think in terms of emails, for me, if it's really urgent, a person will come and speak to you about it. You know, they'll not just send an email saying, you know, the, the chemistry block's on fire. They'll come and you know, <laughs> you know, they'll come and tell you. Do you see what I mean? And 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 I think what. In it, on his blog, and I'll, you know, I'll talk about that in a bit, and he talks about his, um, there's, there's kind of this drive at the moment just to literally just check an email a couple of times a day because what, you know, there might be some things that are just completely distracting from what you're really focused on. You know, I'm, a, I'm an absolute pain in the backside, and my wife tells me off regularly for checking my work emails over the weekend because you've got that thing in your head, you know, if it's a problem you need to solve, but because you're not at school, you can't solve that problem, and then that creates frustration. That's what Newport's working on as a distraction. Focus your energies on the things that you can do well and, and deliver with quality, and anything else that can be pushed or can be you know, delegated or those sorts of things, do that in an appropriate time. So I think that's you know my, 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 my interpretations of it, but I think I've still got to get my head around certain things in terms of how I can encourage teachers to that, because the time issue is a really big one with that. I, th- I think you're right, but I guess guess the kind of, again, another thing that I took from it was that if you can get into this state of deep work, you're actually saving time in the long yes. run. And I think half an, half an hour of deep work trumps kind of two hours of trying to do a task but being continually distracted yeah, and absolutely. so on. So I think there is a time-saving element, if that makes sense. Absolutely. And I think and one thing also is I am a nightmare for this, and this is why I'm, I'm learning about it, is I am a nightmare, you know, um, I'll be in the office of somebody and I can, they're working on something and I'll ask them something I'll ask them about the day and I'm thinking shut up <laughs> let, them, let, them, <laughs> let them get on with it it's just, it's just the way you know, I am, you know, I'm quite an affiliative sort of person I like to get to know people and that sort of thing and actually really just let them crack on do you know what I mean and, and yes. I'm learning that now and I feel a bit of a hypocrite sometimes and I'm like somebody will ask me something I'm like I really need to concentrate on this can you just can I, can I wait for another say 10 minutes because actually it might have been a week ago that I've done the same thing back to that person, and <laughs> I'm just like, you know, and that, and that, I think that we need to, as I think as leaders, as, as as members of staff, sometimes is particularly in office environments actually, and I think you know some staff who you know get go off into the classroom and concentrate on things, they get a bit of a bad rap because they're like, oh, they never they never get involved. Well, actually, they just probably want to crack on with the task that they've got in hand and get it done so they can concentrate on something better. Do you see where I'm coming from? Yes, no, I, I certainly do. And I think the other thing that I found interesting, particularly about, because I read the book, um, Amir, and I came away thinking, um, 
right, shallow work is kind of kind of like the enemy and deep work's the kind of ultimate goal that we want to get to. And then, then I was getting frustrated thinking how much of a teacher's time is taken up with, with shallow work, how much is distraction and so on. But then, but then I read one, one of your pieces about this and, and I think you make the point that, that tackling shallow work first is, is, is perhaps the key to this. So I wonder whether firstly you, you can tell us what, what you think Newport means by shallow work and then, yeah, why, why do you why do you argue that? Well, what's the what's the best way to deal with this kind of work? In the book, Newport pretty much frames shallow work in the sense of things that are logistical that don't really add value that are easy to replicate and automate. You know, so classic one is, is email, but it's anything along those lines that actually, you know, for the amount of effort that goes into something, what do we get out of it? And I, you know, in my in my capacity now, I'm starting to you know ask those sorts of questions about lots of different things, you know, and I think that's that's that, that's what he's, he's talking about there, and, and like what the blog post that you're talking about, I was you know it was it was it came, the the point of sorry the blog post came up in a conversation in a meeting that I had in previous school and about workload and Joe Kirby had looked at this idea of what Tim Brighouse used to call butterflies and hornets. And butterflies are things that we really need to push and hornets are the things that we just don't get anything from, you know, or don't really add anything to what the, te- the teacher's day-to-day practice. And what I did then is you see on the blog post, and, you know, if you put the link on that, it'd be great, so people get a bit more clarity on it, but he, was a, he listed all the hornets in terms of the things that kind of take up time. And then what I did is I highlight the ones in terms of what I thought was was shallow work in, in Newport's context. Um, and I think, you know, the big one that people will always come to and really question is marketing and feedback. Now, marketing and feedback, um, for me, has to happen. If you look at the research in, in behavioural economy, behavior economists like Dan O'Reilly, but look at if a person does a task um, and you don't give them any feedback. If you want them to re- replicate that task, they'll do that of less quality because they don't feel their effort is being acknowledged. Basically, fundamentally, marketing feedback acknowledges effort. But more importantly, it says from that, if you want a change in behaviour, then that feedback has to be diagnostic. So for me, and, you know, there's a big thing about marketing at the moment, and I'm, you know, I've really looked at strategies for you know, my previous month about how we can limit marketing and what we can really focus on. But for me, you've still got to do it. And that's the difference there in terms of what um, these harnicks are and what shallow work is. Because I think what Newport is saying is that you can't avoid shallow work. It has to take place. But you need to think about how you can do it without impacting on the deep work that you need to do. I see. And and, and so your argument is... Kind of get it done first so it's out of the way, would that be right? So you can yeah. focus on, on the deep task. Is that right? Yeah. And do you know what? And again, right, if my wife listens to this, she's going to laugh her head off because I am <laughs> hypocritical. I will, you know, her, her, her mantra is just do it now. So like, if we need to talk about something like that, just do it. But I'm like, oh, yeah, I'm just, I'm just reading this. I'm just watching this. And it's that sort of mindset, isn't it, in terms of the stuff that just needs doing, get it done, get it done effectively, get it done efficiently, get it done quickly, so that you are opening up that amount of time to really go into things that are important to you and are important to what you want to achieve. I see, yeah. And and you're right, because I, I mean, I've been there myself, and, and I think marking is a great example of this. 
that I, I used to, early days in my career, I would leave marking, Monday's marking till, till Sunday evening, whenever potentially I've, ta- I've taken the books in Wednesday night um, and I'm leaving it till the last moment and I'm thinking, well, that's fine. So I'll, I'll, def- I'll, I'll get it done. That's fine. But um, I want to do some more interesting stuff. So maybe some more interesting lesson planning and think through question design and so on. I, I, I enjoy that more and I see more value in that. So I'm going to I'm going to focus my attention on that. But I think the problem is, and I think you've hit the nail on the head here, it's in the back of my mind, this, this marking that, that I've got to do it. It lingers. And, and even though you think it doesn't make that big of an impact, it, it, I think it does. I think it creeps in there. You, you can never fully relax and embrace this, what Newport calls deep work, when you've got something, I think anyway, kind of hanging over you that you know needs to be done. You know is important, but you know you're not going to enjoy it. So, yeah, it's it's a classic thing. Like another book on this is, is Eat That Frog, which I like as well, which is just you, you've got to get the crap stuff done early on because it's unavoidable. It has to be done. Get it done in an efficient, timely manner. And then it helps you focus on the important stuff later. Like it's all easier said than done. But I think you're right. I think certainly a message I got from the book, but more so from, from your blog post was, yeah, get get the shallow work done first, I think. Yeah. Is, is that fair, Amir? Yeah, it, absolutely. And I think also, I think... What you've got to remember with this, the, the shallow work is that that is creates stress. I think for me, if you as a, there's, there's two big things in teaching at the moment. One is obviously work, uh, workload, but the other one is the is, is the is the response is the follow up from that, which is the stress that this work this workload creates. And if you've got three billion and one things going around in your mind, and again, I am guilty of this. I'm not sitting here today today saying I am a master of deep work. No, I am not. I am learning about this. And I've always had that philosophy is that some, I'm always learning. And I think one of the things that struck me is that actually the times I've been most stressed are the times when I haven't done the kind of shallow work sort of stuff and I'm not continuing to concentrate on what I think that matters. You know, I've done the thing where it's like, oh, those books haven't been marked now. But also, coming back to that about bookmarking and things like that, then you'll get some schools are like, oh, we don't mark books. So what are you actually doing with the amount of work that students are putting in. Because if you're not marking books, for me, and I might be wrong, and I'm not saying that, you know, we should go back to triple marking and all that stuff. I'm certainly not saying that. But what I'm saying is, is that if you don't mark a book, either lying in the lesson or as a process like talking about outside the classroom, you basically, you know, without actually directly saying it, I am not interested in that work. You know, that's how the student will see it. And that's what Ariely's argument is in terms of behavioural economics. You don't acknowledge the effort that someone's making in and, and give them the feedback that's going to help them move forward. Actually, you're creating a, a breakdown in terms of that relationship and the capability of that person to do something. So I think, you know, shallow is Kirby's point about hornets is that you just get rid of them, you know, or, or, or limit them as much as possible. I'm a slight, I have that slightly different spin on it in terms of there are still certain things that we need to do. And I think whether, whether controversial or not, I think that you know some of it has to take place, and how you how you how you do that is the thing that you can change. And I think that's what you know. I've not really got around. I've, I've always I've gone really slack on the blog blog writing recently. But my next post is about what what is there an example of shallow work that takes up a lot of time that actually could you rethink it and do it much more efficiently? 
Yeah. That sounds good. Yeah. Well, I'll, I'll very much look forward to that one, Amir. And me, my last question about deep work is: we, we've spoke a lot here about kind of teachers getting into into this deep work framework. Is there anything students can take from the book? Is, is there any way we can get students to think deeper using some of the principles from, from Newport's book? Well, I mean, when I first read the book and I was talking to to, to, to Luke Sparks at Dixon's Jersey about it, and and he, I think I seem to remember he said to me, "That's what students should be doing in lesson." That is what we should be doing in lesson. We should be creating an environment, building the systems and routines so that we can allow students to think really deeply about the things that are going to make a difference. Do you see where I'm coming from? Yes. And I, and I, and I, I, I agree with that. But you know, and then you think, okay, so what does that what does that mean? Well, you know, the, the removal of distractions, so a nice, calm learning environment. You know, the 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 the, the reduction of shallow work. I mean. I still hear of schools that expect students to copy down all the learning objectives and all that sort of stuff. Just write a title. Do you know? Do you know? Yeah. <laughs> write a t- just write a title, you know. And then, they, and then the teachers will go, I mean, I said, I did say that, you know, I'd do a bit of a premise about what we're looking at, and that's important. But don't go into the finer detail about, you know, each learning objective and what this will mean. Just crack on and really focus on the learning and what's going on in lessons. And do you know what? I I I have worries that this is going to come back and bite me at some point, Craig. But you know, and lots of things I said. But I think I think for me, you know, he said, you know, you talk about um, you know students and all sorts of things. We, we part of our job is you know is this is is this idea of is helping students into the metacognition. You know, for me, it's that ability to you know don't say oh, I'm going to study this. It's about how can we create the environment for them to study that, and how are the processes that help them do that. And I know you look really deep into that medical exercising, but that for me is, is, is Newport's argument would equally apply to a lesson. That's what should be happening in a lesson. Reduce the distractions, get the you know the, the procedural stuff just kind of knocked knocked off and done, and then really spend the time on focusing on learning. And the same sort of thing at home. When they're revising, you know, <laughs> it's classic sort of language, language in it, but switch off your Xbox, turn off your phone. Go upstairs and focus on learning. I mean, I'll say this: my mum, before my DCS, pretty much locked me in my room between February and May when the exams came. But that was because, <laughs> you know, but understood, and I understood that actually that's distracted me. The distractions out there were removed, and I could just focus on what was important, and that worked, you know. And, and you know, okay, you, you might you might question why, you know, the the, the logistics that, but actually that that opportunity just to get rid of everything, turn off your phone. And just concentrate, and, and again, from <laughs> I have to be careful because again, that's that, some people might see that as a bit critical by me because I'm a nightmare for checking my emails on my phone or on, on Twitter and all sorts of. But I am, I am really streamlined. Like I've got rid of Instagram, I've got rid of Facebook off my phone because of all the notifications. I turn all notifications off on my phone. It's like if I want the information, I'll go to it. I will not let the information distract me. Do you see where I'm coming from? I do, I do, and it's it's hard. And I'm gonna I'm gonna talk about in the takeaway um, at the end of this interview the kind of measures I've put in place to try and enable myself to get into this period of deep work as much as possible. And you're right, I mean, it is a flipping nightmare. And uh, like tw- Twitter's the worst for me, uh, absolutely, because it's it's my favourite, especially when I've got a book to promote. I, I can't really afford to, to not, be, not be on there. But yeah, and I'll I'll focus more on that um, at the end. But again, just just to wrap up this thing on deep work for me, it, it ties in really nicely with all the with with all Sweller's cognitive load theory stuff, especially with the the redundancy effect. The fact that 
like distractions and they could be in the form of noise it could be te uh, students kind of speaking about irrelevant things it could be my latest campaign about displays or on the notice on uh, around the classroom or it could be something as innocent as a teacher asking a question or making a comment that's not kind of directly related to, to what um, all the students are thinking about at the time. Something like that can throw you out of this deep work kind of mindset or state of mind. So I think it ties in really nicely with that and just as much as possible. And I think routines come into play as well here. Just 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 getting kids into routines so that they know what to expect in the classroom so they don't have to waste precious working memory capacity or attention thinking about it it's automatic routines are in place there's very few distractions so they can settle down to this deep work and I, yeah i i just love the way it ties in with 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 my reading of cognitive load theory anyway if that makes sense absolutely and, and i know we're going to move on but just one kind of final thing i mean i will emphasize this is that I'm learning, I'm learning so much from this. I am not in any way, shape, or like so about the, the kind of lead department sort of focus and, 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 and this in terms of deep work. I am not in a place where I think I am there and I think I never will be there because there's always going to be something. But I think even now I can see things where I am a little bit more clear on things, I'm a little bit more focused. I can, you know, it's like when you're driving, when you're driving, you know, and, and things like that. He talks about productive meditation and, not having the radio, I mean, I, I'm a nightmare from the radio full blast, but no, I'm not having the radio. <laughs> you can you kind of think through, think things through the day, like kind of get your day going and then come back and decompress. It's just it's just things like that that I'm taking away. I'm like, I can do that there, I can do that. And I think I learned so much from that book and there's so much to do. I mean, I think I'm only just starting on that journey, but I think I, do, I really do recommend, you know, particularly leaders, Teachers as well, but particularly leaders, reading that book and reading his book as well, the previous one, so good you can't ignore you and, and really, you know, taking on board these ideas of, you know, career capital and knowledge and thinking really hard about things. It's, it's, it's really reframed a lot of my thinking. Yeah, I completely, completely agree and second that one, Amir. That, that's superb, that. Um, well, I just want to move on to the final thing I want to talk to you about before I hand over to you for your reflections and, and the big three. And that's schemes of work. Um, and it's just because it's... It's one of those practical things that, that well, there were two reasons, really. Firstly, lots of teachers ask about it on Twitter. And, and secondly, and I've, I've heard Mark McCourt talk about this, and it's so true. The fact that every year schools seem to be rewriting their schemes of work. It's like, well, as soon as year 11s go, right, we're going to use a bit of gain time. We're going to rewrite the year nine scheme of work or rewrite the year eight scheme of work. And I can understand it when there's a specification change. But it seems to me that constantly we are spending so much time rewriting schemes of work. So I've just Got a couple of specific questions really but i'm going to start with a more broad one and that for you amir what, what are the essential features of a good scheme of work a, a, a great question um and and that's and i've changed my i've changed my answer year on year i think but i think i'm drilling down now to what really matters i think first of all like i said before about so much of um, kind of retrieval uh, points and the assessment points that you want to put in place and a marking point, you know, put them into the scheme of work, have them done and keep, because going back to what we said about the deep work, that keeps people getting things done and getting things out of the way and they know where they're up to and not stressing about it. I think that, that that's one of the things. I think in terms of, in terms of writing the scheme of work, I mean, I'll be, I'll be honest, you know, again, I think it's, it's some, I, I, I need to be careful, but there's, there's some, some costs that you need to be careful of in terms of the amount of time you put into the right scheme of work. 
because there are a lot of good ones out there. I think there are a lot of one, a lot of people who've gone away and had the time to think about this. Now, it's interesting to talk about Marmacon because you probably disagree with me on this one, but that the art mathematics mastery model and, and what Bruno already put together originally in his key stage three scheme work and the White Rose Maths Club scheme work, well, they're very very similar in terms of their structure, but they're really good in terms of having an outline sort of journey, an outline sort of plan, and I really work. And for me, when I, when I, the last time that I wrote scheme work, it was that that I took. I took the structure because I'm thinking, I haven't got the time or the mental capacity to really go, you know, thinking deeply about <laughs> about that learning journey. And and, and, and and as much as I want to, you know, that's the time there where I can think, well, I've got that outline plan and I can think about the number of lessons that we've got and the time that we've got, and I can start to break that down a little bit from there. I mean, one of the things for me is, like, we go back to... The MEP, and then you, you know it's going to be one of the big three, but you know, the MEP, the CIMT website, right, has all of that done. Everything, everything to the nth degree. And yes, you, you're absolutely right, you have to be careful just picking it up and just doing it. You've got to plan it and really think about it and, and put it into the time frame that you've got. Absolutely. But again, look at where you know the heads of department have put something really strong together and they're being open about it. Don't just go to your local, the, the next school along we've got really good outcomes asking for their scheme of work because it probably won't. They probably won't give it to you because they're saying, well, I've done all this work. <laughs> you know, <laughs> why should I? But also at the same time, you know, outline plans are absolutely fine to take on and, and, and replicate. But then think about the time that you've got, the students you've got and what you can actually achieve in that time. And that, that was a, you know, that was a lesson I learned when, when, when a, a, a I, I, I start to say, because I'm thinking, I'll just do all of that. And actually, it's not so easy because, you know, different schools have different amounts of time. You know, some schools have three lessons a week, some schools have five. I know some schools have seven for maths. And what you can achieve at times is obviously very different. So I think, first of all, a good scheme of work is dictated by the kind of, again, going back to the word about constraints, the constraints that you have and what you can actually achieve in that time. But also... If you know, talk about that. If you turn around and look at it and think, actually, the time's not there, and that's your real argument to say. I mean, the big thing about I'm, I'm rambling in, but the big thing about maths is it's massive in terms of content. Absolutely massive. You know, it counts as two GCSEs, but you only get one GCSE, and that that makes me laugh because it's like there's so much to cover, and you've got this kind of constrained amount of time, and it's your argument to say we need more time in maths. I don't want that to be, you know, cut off, say, creative arts, because it's important creative arts, but we need to think about how we're going to put that time in for maths. And then, you know, you can really get into, into your teeth into um, how to plan and going to from your long-term plan into your medium-term plan in terms of the time you've got. That, yeah, that, that makes no, no, no. That makes <laughs> that makes perfect sense of me. Well, let, let me dig into some specifics then about good schemes of work. So I've got I've got four kind of things I want to uh, quickly ask you about. The first is um, related concepts. I'm a little bit fascinated about this, and I know from my work on diagnostic questions, when I analyse results, it's one of the biggest causes of mistakes is when kids muddle up related concepts, whether it be mean and median, reflection, rotation, area perimeter. Um, anything like that that are closely related. So, w what should a good schema work do in terms of that? Should, should they teach them together or teach them separate? So, we had a we had a conversation a debate on Twitter about this in terms of um, the conversation about area perimeter in terms of multiplication. Me saying that it's areas related to multiplication and perimeters related to addition and subtraction, and therefore they you know they form part of the application of that tool, if you see, I mean, going back to what I said before about learning the skills and developing those tools and then applying them. 
Um, and then there was a bit of comeback. I think one or two said that you know you bring them together because you might be asked you know questions that have those two elements together. And yeah, I get that. But if the, for me, you you are it's the relatedness that creates the confusion. You know, going back, Bruno already talks about this. I mean, talked about this years ago now. You know about you know that that's what he saw when he looked at it. The, it's the the familiarity actually creates the problem because you're thinking, you know, went back. I talked to said earlier at, at the start about our arcs and sectors and confusing area and circumference. It's the same sort of thing. It's it's, it's actually separating those out. So that's what I would I would kind of do. And if you look at you know these schemes I've talked about, that's what they do. They do separate out at the beginning. I will say that at the beginning. Uh, the basic application of those skills and then bring them together as you move towards year 11. Yeah, I agree. And there's just a couple of things that I want to add to that. And the first is the bringing together is crucial, of course, because kids have to learn to distinguish between the two the two concepts because what you don't want to happen is that they they're always faced with perimeter taught kind of in a block and they just learn say every time they see a rectangle they're just going to add the lengths of the four sides together add 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 and then they get that in their head because they've just done so many perimeter questions that then later on when they're faced with a rectangle they automatically do the same thing because they've they've not been forced to distinguish between the two related concepts so i think one thing to one thing i'd definitely say is they have to be brought together um, at the end but the second point is that as secondary school teachers, it's kind of a little bit out of our control in the sense that the vast majority of these related concepts kids have met before at primary school. And sometimes they've been presented separately, and particularly if the, the school's following a mastery program, but possibly they've been presented together. So as secondary school teachers, it's all well and good in our schemes of work separating things in year seven. But if they've already been taught together, potentially the damage is already done. Well, what's your take on both those points, Amir? It's an interesting point, and it's, it's one that you have to, you know, we, we forget as secondary school teachers what has gone on in primary schools, and also standards are rising hugely in primary schools in terms of what they're covering, what they're coming out with, what they're capable of doing. And I think one thing that, you know, I talked before about when we do collaborative planning is that when we follow through the scheme of work, is actually then, as the, as the cycle continues, is refining that so that we're aware of what's coming in. So next time we may, may not make the mistake, like you say, assuming the wrong things or not being clear on what they're coming in with or, you know, expecting that they've learned things separately or they've learned things together. So I think that's that would be my response to that. But I think it's, that, that come, what you need to be doing there, and, you know, that is the obvious thing, is spending that time with the primary school and your feeder schools and having that conversation. And would you, uh, just to go one stage further, if you knew, for example, that a, a primary school had taught them together, um, or even if they had taught them separately, would you still advocate in year seven separating the, these related concepts and teaching area as an application of multiplication and perimeter as an application of, of, of addition? I would, because again, even if, even if they've been taught that together, you still, you know, there's still that duty of, you know, we need to make sure that they're not confusing them. Yes. Yeah. And again, I, I think people f forget, or I've certainly been guilty of this, that you can still go into great depth with things like perimeter by introducing non-integer lengths, fractional lengths, even the algebraic lengths and so on. So it's not as if we make things necessarily easier just by focusing on perimeter. We can still have that depth. It just reduces that confusion later on. And um, does that make sense? 
Perfect. Well, a couple more then on, on your scheme of work. And you've kind of touched upon this a little bit, but how do you benefit from things like the spacing and interleaving effects in a scheme of work? How can a good scheme of work kind of tap into those benefits? I think I think the main thing really is that when you pre-plan, you know, I talked about the review lessons and review weeks and assessments and things like that, you can interleave those in terms of the topics that you're going to focus on and therefore keep things as much as possible, you know, the, the, the keep retrieving things and, and, and building those connections between the working memory and the long-term memory as part of the interleaving process and as part of the spacing process. You, you know, there's interleaving space in terms of what you're focusing on the lesson and in what you're focusing on as a, as a scheme work, as a, a series of concepts, but also there's the interleaving space in terms of when you go back and when you check and when you determine if learning's really taking place. So, for example... Um, you might, for example, say for the first half term, say look at fractions and percentages, and you do your main teaching on that for your fractions and percentages in that first half term. But the half term after that, you might have a review lesson where you check on, you know, the learning that's taking place, or a few review lessons where you check on the learning that's taking place on that topic, and then you are, you know, you're not even, you, you you are spending a large period period of time on that concept. But what, and you are spacing that concept, but what you're also doing is keeping that information as much as possible coming back from long-term memory and, and, and slowly but surely over time, reduce, you know, spacing out the times that you retrieve that knowledge, but also at the same time, reducing the amount of time you actually spend retrieving on it as well. Do you see what I'm coming? Because you kind of taper that in terms of from the main learning point, putting milestones down, down through the, the five years that you are going to go back to fractions and decimals, or fractions and percentages, sorry. You're not going to leave that, but you are going to continually check the gaps in the knowledge so that when you come to year 11, they've, they've got a pretty good handle. Yeah, I, I think you're right. And for me, I think this is the skill of writing a scheme of work. I think in the past, I've thought what writing a good scheme of work means is, right, we're going to be teaching fractions for two weeks in year seven. Let's fill that up with really good fraction resources. All right, brilliant. Done that. Now we're going to be doing um, solving linear equations next. Let's find loads of good resources on solving linear equations. Let's put these in a, a shared area so all staff can use them and everything's happy. But for me, the key to a good scheme of work is exactly what you're talking about there, building in these instances where we can retrieve that knowledge at kind of predefined intervals and it, it, it's something that shouldn't be left to chance it shouldn't be left to a teacher remembering right we haven't included a frat we haven't tested kids ability to add fractions in the last four weeks because teachers have got so many things on their mind these things should be these these acts of retrieval should be actively built in to good schemes of work if that makes sense yeah that goes back to what i'm saying before about kind of lean department approach pre-designing and pre-determining as much as possible and taking those decisions out of the teacher's mind so they've got some they've got that pressure off them to concentrate on, on you know on doing it if you see what I mean rather than worrying when to actually make that happen you know and, you know and that's that's what a good head of the department I think could do it's like say listen to things like your podcasts reading the literature out there and, and go right so that's really where I should be putting things and then the teacher is really getting that support and that quality that behind them and um, can i just ask him here on that one you mentioned the review lesson is that something that is so it's kind of pre-built into every topic or every couple of weeks could, could you how, how does that work well, what are the practicalities of this review lesson in terms of your scheme of work 
I, I, I took the idea of, 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 of Danny Quinn and, and, and she said that she pretty much did it every week, you know, because as much as it's important to cover content, it's also important to have opportunities to go back because that's equally as important. So really, every week, a review lesson. And like I say, the content and the focus of that review lesson is, is, is pre-planned. So, and then the way I set it up because of the design of the, of the cycles that Dixon and Trinity have is that we'd have a review lesson every week and then a review week every half cycle. So we could go into greater depth on certain things that assessments of toddlers are not so strong. I see. That makes perfect sense. And that, that leads me nicely into the last two things I just wanted to ask you about your scheme of work. Firstly, what, what, do, what do your homeworks look like, Amir? Uh, um, I, I, again, different different now because of the different maths department, but previously we used Hegarty Maths and set homework to Hegarty Maths and they were based on what was going on in, this, in the lesson at the time. Some people, there may be argument, and I think there is argument, in fact, that setting homeworks that are different from what's going on in the learning, but I think for me, it was it, I wanted to have that little bit more reinforcement and show that they, they had taken something away from the lessons rather than you know, waiting and setting home with they, they might be distant from. But that said, again, there's opportunity there for the space and effect, the forgetting, those sorts of things. And also, what's nice about Hectomass and things like that is that they've got the support material then to help them the homework if they are struggling. So that's that's the kind of direction that I took in that context. That's interesting, that. So it is because I'm kind of moving away from topic specific homeworks purely to kind of keep tapping into this spacing and interleaving. But I know I've had a lot of kickback from some teachers who say, no, you still need that kind of extra topic specific practice following the, the teaching of a, of a particular to- topic or concept to ensure that kids have got it in there so you can retrieve it at a later date so would that be your thinking like let's let's almost kind of save the spacing and interleaving for these review lessons for our uh, kind of retrieval starters at the start lessons that you described earlier whereas homeworks are going to be kind of topic specific things in the main yeah that's right i think that's that's the approach i'm taking but you know like i said you know on, on a number of occasions and this conversation i'm having i'm open to change by having my mind change and you know if the evidence is there then i'm you know changing that structure about what goes on, I think, is, is valid. Got it. Fantastic. And final question on schemes of work, I mean, and that's just assessments, because this is a, a massive thing um, in a lot of schools. Do you have kind of high-stakes assessments, low-stakes assessments? Uh, how frequently are they? And, and what, do you, what do you record, basically? So, I mean, from a, from a, a formative point of view, in a sense, a low-stakes assessment comes as part of a review lesson, it's short and snappy assessment, no more than about 10 marks. And then that's that's skills focused. And then what I would suggest is if people want to take that forward is use that to build a, a kind of skills map of what students can do because you have to be careful. Question level analysis is important of, for, of summative assessment. But as we know from, from maths, a summative assessment, unless it's designed to cover a particular unit, a summative assessment is like a GCSE paper only covers a sample of the curriculum and therefore... Yes may not be truly indicative of the learning. So, you know, I know there's been a conversation about mock exams recently, and, and I am I am a fan of mock exams, and I do think they should be, you know, more, the frequency is fine from, at my school, I'm absolutely happy with it. But I think, you know, you need to look at the underlying skills as well, not just rely on the QLAs, have the students got over the line, because there might be topics that are really strong on that haven't come up. I see. So you, in terms of the, do you have kind of end of unit assessments or end of half termly assessments? How frequent yeah. are they? So one, one, one thing that, I, that 
current school is using is they use the AQA terminal assessments because they fit neatly into the schemes of work. It all it all fits. So they use the AQA terminal assessments. They are summative, and um, but the reason we use the AQA ones is going back to what I said before. Examiners are writing them, you know, um, and they are you know designed to test students' different abilities in, in terms like the A01, A2, A3 sort of concepts as well. So, you know, the application of the skills tested there as much as the skill itself is tested in the formative sense. Got it. That makes perfect sense. Well, we're, we're, we're honing in on the end now, Amir. You'll be pleased to know. So, last last couple of things, and that's, that's reflection. So, just two questions from you here. Firstly, I'm interested, I know you're a big reader, and we've, we've already talked about um, Cal Newport's work, which is it's great that, because sometimes the same books come up over and over again, but every now and again there's something completely different. So, I'm, I'm dead happy you've pointed that out. Is there any other book that you'd recommend uh, teachers should read? Uh, there's, 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 in, in terms of subject-specific... Um, I'm going to kind of cheat you because I'm going to mention one, but mention one that hasn't, I don't think, it's been mentioned that often. Obviously, Ed Southall's Yes, But Why, I think that's really, really important in terms of that subject knowledge and developing that. But in terms of pedagogical practice, I think questions and prompts for mathematical thinking, the uh, ATM book by uh, your future uh, interviewee. So it was, <laughs> that, that's, again, one of the things where, in terms of developing the reason and the questions, those sorts of things, Spending that time, put the quality in. There's a really good rubric in there that allows teachers to really think about. I've got this topic. Kind of develop the thinking around it. That's great. Yeah, that's an absolutely brilliant choice. That, and I'll be, I'll be pleased to tell them that it's been recommended as well. So that's that's a great one, Amir. And last question for me: What do you wish you'd know when you first started teaching that you know now? You know, I, I really, I'm really, and you, I know you ask this a lot, and I've really thought about this, and it's it's tricky. But I think the one. Kind of the one thing that I wish I'd known that in, in terms of teaching is that context is everything. And I think, you know, you can't walk from one environment to another, be it a different class, a different time of the day, a different school, all those sorts of things, and expect to do the same thing and get the same outcome. You've got to learn how to adapt to how your, how your thinking and how your working takes place to suit needs of students at different, in different situations. And... That the reason I didn't learn that to begin with is, like I said before, because quite literally you work through the textbook and that was it. You know, and actually there's a lot more to teaching and learning, the planning and teaching and learning, than that. So that I think for me that was the the, the, the thing that I still take away today about context and, and adapting to that. That's great. That's fantastic advice. Um, so now we've reached the part of the show where I hand completely over to you, Amir. I will put links to all these in the show notes. But what three websites, blog posts, or whatever you like, would you direct our listeners to? Um, I think the first of all, the, the two websites I'd really like staff, to, staff teachers to look at. <laughs> first of all, we've talked about it. We're back to look at the MEP website. You see, I enter the MEP website. Um, it's just comprehensive. It's got everything. Yes, it is a bit dated. Don't just tack it in, attack it onto what you're doing. You know, think about how you're going to use it. But I, as a resource starting point, I'm a massive fan. So look at that. I do have a look at that. As a subject leader, if I was talking about things that I was in terms of teaching and learning, and you know, as a head department, Mark McCourt's uh, series of posts on mastery and teaching for mastery. I learned so much. Just by reading those, and they're comprehensive, but you can, there's so many takeaways. And, you know, again, this is from a subject expert who's an academic who's done the job, who knows it inside out. So, again, it's, it's worth reading and do have a look at that. And I think my final one, really, um, 
and I know you've spoken to these, is, is Hendrik and McPherson's what does this look like in the classroom? You know, having subjects in their fields talk about specific things in teaching, that work or questions that we need to ask in teaching about those specific things is, you know, summarising it in that text has been, you know, really refreshing. And I'm, I'm just starting to make my way through it now. I'm, I'm one of them that reads a couple of books at a time. So I'm reading, I'm rereading one book and then I'm reading the, um, the, the, the what does it look like, look like in the classroom book as well. So those are my big, those are my big three really that I would, I would say for, for people to take away as well as obviously you know, the books and the reading that we talked about previously. They are wonderful choices, and as I say, there'll be links to those um, in the show notes. Well, that has brought us to the the end of it. Another epic interview, Amir. So. Uh, a couple of, couple of reasons to say thanks to you. Firstly, thank you for, for giving up your time. We were recording this on a Saturday morning. Um, and yeah, just just thank you for, for giving up your precious time at the weekend. It's It's been an absolute pleasure. And it's just, it's really refreshing to, to speak to you for, for a number of reasons. Firstly, it's it's interesting that you, myself and you have been teaching for roughly the same time. And we seem to be on kind of a similar journey that we're, we're learning from prior mistakes and we're, we're interested in, in what the research has to say but then crucially adapting that to suit needs and and that's been one thing that's really come through from this conversation and, and you mentioned it as one of your biggest things you wish you'd known the, the context so it's not just saying right i've seen this work somewhere or i've read that this works so i'm just definitely going to wheel this out it's about adapting things and, and making it work for you that, that, that's that's just been so refreshing and also i just think uh, the the uh, stuff you shared about being a head of department for me is just is just fascinating because I've spoke about this many a time. I don't think I'll ever be a head of department. I, th I think that there are lots of pressures and elements of the job that don't particularly appeal to me. But the way you've described it and the advice that you've given, I just think has has been superb and will be will be valuable to so many people. And please, 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 I know I know this is terrible because I'm, I'm asking you to give up more time. But return to writing your blog, Amir, because there's, there's some wonderful posts there, and you've kind of teased them a bit more that you're going to write about this shallow work. And I'm, I'm I can't wait to read that because it's it's sensible practical advice that i think we'll all benefit for so i'm going to shut up now and just say thank you very much for your time and, and for the wonderful work you do oh no problem it's, it's you know thank you very much and like i say i've not made i've not hidden the fact that you know it would have been a it's one of the dreams to be uh, on your podcast so yeah no thank you very much for giving the opportunity and uh, yeah just keep up the good work because we're all learning from you and it's it's, it's it's making a real difference so thank you as well cheers Amir. So there you have it. There was my interview with Amir Arazu. I really hope you enjoyed that one and you got as much out of it as I did. Because I tell you what, I am taking away loads from that interview. I'm going to try and distill that now into a few of the key things that are going to change my practice. Um, quickly, I just want to mention centrally planned lessons because it's something that's come up on the podcast a number of times now. And I tell you what, I'm almost sold on the idea. Again, I just go back to thinking what it was like when I first started teaching and what my lessons must have looked like. 
And I made the point with Amir that surely the only reason I can plan half-decent lessons now was because I, I've learned from those mistakes. But I tell you what, it's taken me 10, 11, 12 years to get half-decent at lesson planning. And I'm still not great because, as, as I discovered when I spoke to Daisy Christodoulou, my, my emphasis has been wrong. I haven't been planning the examples. I've been focusing on still resources and explanations and so on. So is there a way to fast-track teachers to get better at lesson planning and I think there is I think this idea of, of presenting um, inexperienced or just any teachers with a really high quality well thought out well structured well resourced lesson and essentially getting them to look at it interpret it and make tweaks to suit the needs of their department and I kind of draw the analogy with with cognitive load theory really here and and the importance that that puts on worked examples as opposed to solving problems independently when you try and solve a problem independently and you don't have that knowledge, that bank of experience to call upon, then you can get so kind of bogged down in the minutiae of the problem that it's hard for you to learn anything transferable out of it. And I think it was exactly the same when, when I was planning lessons and I didn't have that experience. I was so focused on the nitty gritty. What resource should I use here? What animation should I use here? How long is this going to take? And then in the actual lesson itself, I'm so thinking about behavior and all those little things that become automated the more experience you get, that I'm not sure I got any better at, at lesson planning. Or certainly it took me flipping ages to do so. Whereas, just like with a worked example, if you're presented with a complete solution and your job is to interpret the solution, look at it as a whole, then it's less cognitively demanding and you're more likely to learn something transferable from it. So for that reason, I'm leaning more towards this, but I do think it's important that teachers, inexperienced teachers, are involved in this lesson planning process. I think if you're just given a script and saying, there you go, churn that out, I don't think it's going to be as useful as if you were part of the discussion process when that thing's being put together. And I love Amir's idea of pairing up less experienced and more experienced teachers in the creation of these centrally planned lessons. So I think that was important. The other thing that I loved talking about was, was that right fit, finding the right fit both for a head of department and a teacher. It is so flipping important that. Now, I'm going to make a confession here. I absolutely loved talking to um, to Danny Quinn um, about Michaela School. This isn't the confession, by the way. I mean, it, Danny's brilliant to speak to. But I'm not fully convinced I could work in Michaela. Certainly, perhaps not at this stage in my career. I don't know if it is the exact right fit for me. So to make that decision, if a job came up at Michaela, I would make sure I went round for a tour, I spoke to people who'd worked there and so on, because Michaela will be a very different school from what I'm used to. Likewise, I'm, I've only spoke, uh, taught in comprehensive schools. I'm not entirely convinced I would be the right fit for uh, an independent school and because there's such a wide variety in them. And certainly I wouldn't be making that decision whether I was a right fit or not. Just on the day of the interview, I tried to go around to that school. And again, Amir made the point that we're so connected these days that if you put a shout out on Twitter, you can probably find someone who's worked there and, and get into a conversation about them. So finding the right fit is so important because I see too many teachers who are in essentially the wrong school, the wrong school for them. And it can be a demoralizing experience. There's such a, a wide variety of school experiences out there that are determined by not just the location of the school, but the culture, the, the culture that's instilled by the head, by the line manager, by the head of department and so on. So finding that right fit can be make or break. And especially, especially if you are new to the profession. I remember my PGCE in, in Nottingham, 
so many teachers um, dropped out in kind of towards the end of the course or in the first couple of years because they didn't find that right school for them. So Amir's point about during your training, if possible, if you're doing a PGC or whatever it is, trying to get placements in, in different schools, leafy suburbs, tough comprehensives and so on to find out what's right for you. Next thing I wanted to chat about, differentiation. I'm, I'm flipping obsessed with differentiation and I am I'm, I'm convinced now that differentiation comes later, too soon in the learning process. You try and differentiate too soon, it can all fall apart. And myself and Amir spoke about this. I like to start everybody off at the same point. I like, I have to do an assessment of understanding, initial understanding, and I do that using diagnostic questions. So if I'm teaching a new topic that requires some prerequisite or baseline knowledge, I've got to assess that baseline knowledge. Um, but at the same time, I don't want to be making any hasty decisions. I don't want to be thinking, right, Josie, I'm pretty sure she knows that. So let's get her cracking on with something else whilst I, whilst I ensure everybody else is at the right level and so on. I like everybody to move forward at the same pace in the initial knowledge acquisition phase. And then the differentiation can come later. But then, of course, we're faced with that problem and, and you get it with diagnostic questions. What on earth do you do if you've, you've asked a diagnostic question? And Amir used the example of um, he's going on to teach sectors um, and arc lengths and he's got to figure out first whether kids can distinguish between the area of a formula and the circumference of a, a, a sorry, area of a circle and circumference of a circle formula. Some kids are going to know that, some kids aren't, but you want to move everybody on to the next stage at the same time. So if I asked a diagnostic question to distinguish between that, the kids who've understood it, I'd get them either working on their own diagnostic question or interpreting the answers to the current diagnostic question. Why did I choose that distractor? Why did I choose that distractor? Is there a better distractor I could have chosen? Get them working on that so it's the current thing at a deeper level. Whilst I sort everybody else out, then everybody's ready to move on at the same time. And then the differentiation can come in the intelligent practice or the purposeful practice that I talk about in the book or some kind of rich task later on down the line but differentiation too soon I'm convinced is dangerous last couple of things I wanted to talk about we mentioned Amir mentioned two amazing bundles of resources firstly CIMT I'm actually working and um, with, with Tez at the moment all the all the CIMT stuff is on Tez and it's criminally underused and all the answers are there and stuff as well so I'm working to try and bring that more to the forefront in a special collection that I'm writing so check that out either just google Tez CIMT or just go direct to the CIMT website they're flipping wonderful those resources and then Amir mentioned the big one SMP we need them we need them in the STEM center. We need we need some kind of national campaign, a big petition to get those. Because I'll tell you what, if you've never seen those SMP booklets, they're gonna blow your mind. It's all, it, it amazes me teaching it. Things always come back around in cycles. It's all your variation theory. It's all your purposeful practice. It's your rich tasks. It's your investigations presented in a really well thought out way. So yeah, let's, fingers crossed. I'm gonna, I don't know who I need to speak to to make this happen, but let, let's get some kind of campaign going there. SMP, we need them. We need them on the STEM Centre. But yeah, check out CIMT and SMP because if you're looking to rewrite a scheme of work or looking for worksheets or resources or something, look no further than those. And the final thing was just deep work. And I really enjoy the book, Deep Work. <laughs> like I say, I'm not I'm not a huge fan of these self-help books, but I'm always kind of looking to, to, to improve wherever possible. And one thing I, I really want to improve is my ability to think deep and, and concentrate. And, and Deep Work's a wonderful book for that. And just one takeaway I had from it that, that I didn't have a chance to discuss with Amir but just something that's really changed um, my working practice and my life, really, if that doesn't sound uh, too, too pathetic and, and grandiose. 
And that is di avoiding distractions, but in a specific way. So I'll t let, let me tell you what I mean by that. Um, so I, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a bugger for this. So I'll get home in the evening and myself and my wife will be settling down to what, watch telly or watch a box set from Netflix or something like that. And I'll have my phone next to me. And it is so easy just to take a little glance at that phone, check Twitter, check emails, something like that. Um, and the point um, Cal Newport makes, oh, sorry, and I'll give you a second example as well. Um, we'll be out shopping in Blackburn, uh, maybe a Saturday, and my wife will nip into a shop, Primark or something like that. We're, we're classy us too. And, and I, while she's in there, I'll be stood outside and immediately I'll reach for my phone and I'll check the news, I'll check Twitter, check the football score, something like that. And the point Newport makes is we need to condition ourselves to not need distractions. And almost we need to embrace, not necessarily boredom, but embrace not having, not having that constant stream of news and notifications and so on. So what I do, what I do now is I do two things. And again, maybe this is absolutely useless, but hopefully it'll be helpful for, for some people. One, it's that classic thing that I'll leave my phone in, in another room and I just check it at scheduled intervals. So um, I'm, I've got it down to, I only need to check it every two hours in the evening. I'll tell you what, it's flipping hard. So I'll put it away at six, I check it at eight, check it at 10. And that's made a huge difference because I'm start, it was hard at first, but I'm starting to need it less. Um, I really am. And then the other thing is, whenever I have a spare moment and I'm thinking, right, I'm about to reach for my phone um, because I have nothing else to do and whatever, I just force myself not to. I just force myself to embrace the moment, not in some kind of deep spiritual way or anything like that, but just training my mind not to need those distractions. Um, so I just don't reach for the phone. I'll just stand there kind of gazing into the distance or having a look around and so on. And what it's really, what I've noticed is that when I then settle down to do some deep work or just some focus work where I really need to think hard, I'm less likely to feel the need to be distracted. I'm less likely to want to check it look at my phone or glance up at my gmail account or something like that because i'm slowly conditioning my mind to not crave those distractions and it just little things like that seem to have made a difference for me anyway i best shut up now so um i hope you found that useful um all that remains for me to do is once again thank amir he was he's a wonderful guest please get in touch with him on twitter if you enjoyed this interview i know he'd really appreciate that and thank you to podcastthemes.com for the lovely jazzy music that you've he heard throughout the show thank you to you loyal listeners for keeping listening to these podcasts and, and letting me know that you enjoy them and you're finding them useful as i say if you get a chance to either snap up the book or if you have uh, leave a quick review on amazon and tell me what you liked about it what you found interesting what you found challenging and so on that would mean the world to me and i shall return with some fresh uh, guests in the near future so you take care of yourselves thanks so much for listening and bye for now